For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Star Wars Retrospective Series. I have you not. Join Garrett. Matt. Pokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. And Adam. We seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life. As they review each film in the Star Wars saga. That's good. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Why was Garrett originally hesitant to do this series? Not gonna work. Why did you say so before? I did say so before. How did Garrett and Adam see the re-release special editions? We don't serve their kind here. And does Matt, a Star Trek fan at heart, have any love at all for this series? For my dead body. Search your feelings, podcast listeners. We must be cautious. The percolated media Star Wars retrospective begins now. Hold on. Hold on. Star Wars, released May 25th, 1977. Budget on this was $11,000,000. Box office, $775.8 million dollars. And this is directed by the man himself, Mr. George Lucas. All right. I want to start this off with a little bit of a dissertation, boys. So pull up a chair, get comfortable for a bit, because I have a lot to say to front load this. When Matt said he was wanting to do this series when we were getting ready to launch, I have to admit I was extremely hesitant. The reason, honestly, was because I was done discussing Star Wars. In the 10 plus years I have been podcasting, I have probably written and podcasted more about Star Wars than anything else out there. And when I was at Binge, I was writing articles, reviewing the entire series, defending the prequels, not to mention podcasting almost nonstop about this series, retrospective style leading up to a review of The Force Awakens, to the point that at one point, one of those guys at Binge, they messaged me saying, dude, you are sanitizing this site with Star Wars, you need to stop. And then they did the commentaries for all six films up to that point. And after that aftertaste series was done with a week of release review of The Force Awakens, guys, I was just not interested in continuing it. I was burnt out. Me, the completionist, when these new movies were coming out after The Force Awakens, I'm like, I'm not going to do it anymore. But the week all of the Disney films were released, I would go on the Ben's Airways for spoiler reviews. And don't even get me started on all the hell I caused by saying I didn't think Rogue One was a good idea. I was just done with it. I didn't do reviews of the other films on my own podcast, and Matt and I were doing our own thing anyway. I just thought that all of my thoughts on Star Wars were out there. And not only was I not interested in discussing it anymore, I didn't think anyone would be interested in hearing what I had to say about it again. Goudreau, why did you push to do this on this new site? Well, I guess I have to begin a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away myself to explain my rationale. It is the biggest franchise in the history of cinema. I don't think that is that controversial of a stance. Because of that, I felt it appropriate that you and I needed to do it in some capacity. Never dived in officially, never did a single movie, 
never talked, really, as long as I've known you. We've talked about Star Wars here and there, but never have had as deep of discussions as we do. And I was thinking about going into the new what content can we do? We did it, Binge. Harry Potter, Nightmare on Elm Street, just to name a few James Bond. Those are all pretty heavy hitters in and of themselves. So when it came time to look for new content, I proposed the idea of doing Star Wars. Because even when you did it in the aftertaste format, it was truncated to a degree because you were doing multiple films at a time. And even then, as you just alluded to, you did not do anything after The Force Awakens in a retrospective type of sense. So that leaves four Mm -hmm. movies that you have never talked about whatsoever. And I myself have never gone into detail about my thoughts on Star Wars on any sort of podcast that I've done with you. So I thought it would be interesting, if not for you to repost what you have as far as your opinions, because as you mentioned, you have some things that lead to you being accused of being a contrarian when we were back at Binge or being quote-unquote that guy. The time was right. We've got so much content. And I said, look, there's also a couple movies that you, as a communist, namely the Ewok movies and the Clone Wars animated film, you want to go all the way and do every single thing as the completionist. Let's do it for Star Wars. And I think that little piece is what persuaded you. But I, I have to also say this, to say that I agree with you completely. My hesitancy was based on this. I was just exhausted being at Bench. Everybody was a Star Wars fan, much more so than me. They could talk about Star Wars in detail that I dare not tread. So I always felt like, okay, we'll do it if we are given that option. But I, it wasn't until we got here that I said, you know what, let's let's do it ourselves and go all the way. So I was sort of in lockstep with you about not doing Star Wars at Binge. Part of that was also, it seemed like we were never absent of content ideas. We always seemed like we could fill out the schedule pretty well. And even though it's 2023, we've got the next two plus years mapped out already, still feels like, you know, there's plenty of ideas to fill, at least for the few years after that. So I guess now is as good a time as any, while we're all still walking the planet and while Star Wars is in a state of purgatory, at least as far as the movies go, let's just do it. Adam, when Matt suggested this, how open were you to it? I was open in in the way that I love discussing these movies, and I was hesitant because they've been discussed, they've been discussed over and over and it seems like for the last couple of years, when discussing Star Wars, you kind of can't win for losing. A part of that makes it fun because there's discussions to be had. But for so many people, they've made them not fun discussions anymore. It's kind of a binary all or nothing. And I hate that out in the real world. However, with you two, I know we can have a lively discussion. Shit, we can argue and fight, but still come out having a very good discussion about it. So when it comes to that... Looking forward to it quite a bit. You know, you and I have had these discussions going back, fuck, how old am I? Yeah, 25, 28 years at this point. But I think there's a lot of good content to be had discussing, as what Matt said, is probably, if not the best, the most important franchise that's come down to cinema. That's the point right there. I am not going to make the case that these movies, especially these first three, are the best movies of all time. I'm definitely not going to make that case. What I will make the case for, though, is that they are some of the most important movies that have ever been made. And, you know, I'm going to try my best to review these movies without having said things that I haven't already said. But, Adam, you alluded to it. It's tough not to. These movies have been discussed to the point of nausea sometimes by some sites. And so I'm not going to try to tread that, but I think it's almost impossible not to. 
especially because being as popular as they are, I feel like every sort of opinion has been put out there in some way, whether it's a written review, whether it's a podcast. So it's kind of difficult with Star Wars to say something that has not been said before, but at least for us, unless you know the two gentlemen joining me on this show and have heard their thoughts in the past. I hope that this series will give you at least some context as far as where we come from, if you're a first-time listener. Because as I said, we've never done this fully, and also there is the different eras of Star Wars that I come from a different generation. So I have sort of a certain angle that neither of you have, I guess up to a point. But also, Adam's got kids that have grown up with an entirely new set of movies. And who knows, by the time my boys are old enough, there might be episodes 10, 11, and 12, and we revisit this 10 years later. So the Force will guide us through these shows, but I don't think this will be for at least a statement any of us say something that has never been exposed on the Internet before. Now, jump into this movie we're discussing today. It is a miracle this fucking movie got made. And for this review, I tried really, really hard to look at this movie as its own entity, one that was made to exist as a standalone and not exactly the cultural phenomenon that it eventually became. So I'm taking a real different approach to this particular review. I'm going to detail each and every obstacle that came across Lucas's way, things that should have prevented this from ever happening. Every step, starting from when he was a teenager, there are instances where this movie was not supposed to be made. When Lucas was a teenager... He loved cars, loved cars, and he souped up the car that his dad had bought him, and lo and behold, one day he was out, he was driving home, he was going really fast, got in a car accident. At 16 years old, his life should have ended. His heart actually stopped for a bit in that crash. So that's obstacle number one. And here's the other thing I did. I also watched the lead-ups to these. If people are on my Facebook, they saw throughout the course of the week leading up to this, I watched TA Techs 1138. I watched American Graffiti. Boys, have you guys seen those two movies? Not for a very long time. For Star Wars retrospective, I am doing my best to do everything in an isolated capacity. So talking about this movie, I watched it as a complete one film, beginning, middle, end. I'm not going to talk about stuff it sets up, necessarily. I'm not going to talk about the fallout or the ideas about the trilogy. I'm just going to view this as a piece of entertainment. And because of that, I really didn't want to watch Lucas's previous movies because I felt like, more so with THX as opposed to American Graffiti, it would sort of inform my thoughts on him as a director. And I kind of like my thoughts of those movies now because I'm worried if I go back and watch them, I would not have as positive a view as I do. Adam? I've never seen American Graffiti. Just never had the desire. Not my kind of move. I'm not a car guy. I don't like that culture. <laughs> Wait a few months till we discuss greasers. Mm-hmm. Um, 1138, I've seen a few times. I bought the remastered special edition they did several years ago. I can't remember if it's when Fringe of the Sith came out or post that, but they put out a really nice, beautiful edition, still book, and yeah, so that's something that I've seen a few times, and I've always said, uh, not to spoil anything in case we ever discuss it, but to me, that's science fiction if Scorsese or Coppola ever decided to do a sci-fi film. That's what that's I feel accurate. about 1138, and yeah. I appreciate and admire that movie quite a bit for it being a school project, essentially, when you think about it. So, seen it quite a bit. For those that haven't, if you have a taste for more of an artsy kind of film, I recommend it. If you can't stand an artsy type of film, stay away from it, because 
I don't think it'll hit you. It'll drive you crazy. <laughs> if you're expecting a Star Wars, pre-Star Ooh. Wars, you're not going to get it. <laughs> that is a pretty stilted, very pessimistic film, really, yeah. was what I got when I watched it. Because I'd never seen it before with a early Robert Duvall performance. Yep. But people forget, you know, I mean, he did a THX 1138, and he got in the good graces of Francis Ford Coppola. Francis Ford Coppola had actually seen his student film that he did of THX 1138 and told him, why don't you make this into a feature? So Coppola started American Zoetite and Lucas did it for a studio but that movie flopped and Coppola was not going to give him money for another feature people forget Lucas did work on The Godfather he directed a couple scenes for that and in the course of that he told Lucas he said look he said why don't you make something that makes people feel good THX 1138 does not make people feel good so he wrote what he knew which was cars and hanging out with his friends after school and the dread that you have in the lead up to your graduation of where you're going to be after you graduate high school and so that's when he did American Graffiti and people forget American Graffiti very financially successful it was up for Oscars so it got him a lot of notice and that notice got him in advance to write the script which he took because he really really needed the money But nothing after that because he needed to pump all the money he made off American Graffiti into the making of Star Wars, including building his own effects house to help make the 350 or so effects shots needed for this film. So, again, more obstacles put in his way. And I knew that Lucasfilm was started predominantly to help fund American Graffiti. My question with Lucas has always been, because there's everything from books about Lucas to the people versus George Lucas. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) In the same way that there is no shortage of material about Star Wars, there's even less of a shortage about George Lucas. But you got to remember, he is someone that is, we'll talk about this both with Star Wars and another franchise that we're going to be covering. He was a film student. He went to USC. In the same way that you can't tell the history of professional wrestling without Vince McMahon, I don't think you can tell the history of movies without George Lucas. If you remove him and his contributions, the cinematic landscape would be tremendously different. So for all the people that vilify him or think he's just the money-grabbing equivalent of Jabba the Hutt, you couldn't be any further from the truth. He had to pay his dues in the same way that Frank Sport Coppola, his first thing was Dementia 13 for Roger Goddamn Corman. That was the way you got your foot in the door for a lot of directors. You had to start out in low-budget, basically glorified student films. And if you're lucky, you slowly work your way up to getting one of these big franchises. But also, back at the time, the F word was not around. This is something that he made out of his love for Flash Gordon. And he apparently couldn't get the rights, which is why it, mm-hmm. it turned into Star Wars. It's very much when Sam Raimi couldn't get the rights to Batman, so he made Darkman Dark. instead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. All those kinds of things you can trace back to Star Wars along with. There would be a trail the size of the remnants of Alderaan as far as the things that this movie is responsible for. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. Lucas has detailed many times that out of all his buddies, De Palma, Coppola, all of them, when he showed everybody this movie, there was only one champion, one person who was behind it and said it was going to be a success, and that was Spielberg. Everyone else, everybody, from the people behind the scenes to the producers to even the fucking studio at a couple times, they all told him this is not going to work. And Spielberg was the only one who was like, man, you got something here. Plus, let's not forget, boys. At this point, Fox was in trouble as they had yet another flop on their hands. The Warren Beatty starring Lucky Lady. 
And basically, what it came down to was another huge flop like that would sink the studio. So even more pressure, even more reasons to not think that this movie was ever going to get made. Lucas was only 27 at the time, but he suffered exhaustion, even going to the hospital because the stress this shoot caused made his heart almost give out on him at 27 years old. How much stress do you think that was? <laughs> yeah, I guess him and Francis Ford Coppola were sharing a hospital bed because you read about the shit he went through on Apocalypse Now, him mm-hmm. almost thing. Yeah. It's almost like the dirty dozen explains their bloodstreams <laughs> exactly. as, they making, as they were making their magnum opuses. It's amazing Spielberg never had a near-death experience making Jaws. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did. We just never heard about it. My mom told me that In the lead-up to this, my father would watch a science fiction showcase every weekend, and every weekend they would hype this little movie about to be released called Star Wars, and it really excited my father. He was really into this kind of stuff. He loved Star Trek, and this was something that he he was just stoked for, and I was born in November, and this movie came out in May, so obviously I didn't actually get to see this, but as much as it was, he was told it wasn't going to make anything, there was a little bit of hype leading up to it, and it's funny if you watch Comic-Cons from ni- 1977, they had one little table, <laughs> like <laughs> a little fold-out table, pretty much, that people went up to to get flyers and things that this movie was putting out to hype it up. All right, boys, so that is a lot of what's going into this. I will get into more as we get into the plot. I have, as you can imagine, a lot to get into when we get into the plot. Unless you guys have anything to add in the preamble, what do you guys say we uh, dive into this story, huh? Well, I think there's one red sun that we have to talk about. When did you first see Star Wars, and was this the first Star Wars movie you saw? Yes, it was the very first Star Wars movie I ever saw. It was one of the first videotapes my parents ever made. It was out on Showtime or HBO. My mom taped it off Showtime. And Adam, you probably remember the tape. Like, it had big Star Wars written on it. I do. And I believe I was maybe three, four years old. And I detail in the summary here, but there was a moment where I just fell in love with it. But yeah, this was the very first Star Wars movie I ever saw. It was probably in the lead up to Empire because it was coming out a little later. And I have stories about that because me and my father went and saw that. It was the first movie I ever saw in theaters. But yeah, this was the first one I ever saw. Adam, what about you? The first one that I remember seeing was not this one. We'll get to that one when it is. So if this was the first one that I saw, I sure don't remember it that way. I can't tell you the first time I saw it. I can't even tell you necessarily the format that it was around the house. I just know that it was part of the house. It was part of the collection of tapes, of the VHS tapes with it written on the spine. It was just a regular occurrence. But this came out before I was born. So at least that way, for once, I'm like I'm on Matt's age compared to Karen. <laughs> well, it came out before uh, I was born, too, but it was only about six months. <laughs> six months, yeah, same year. But this one, not sure the first time I saw it, but not the first one I remember seeing. So my answer is yes and no. It was the first one I saw, but it was because my grandfather took me to the theatrical re-release of the special editions in 97. Oh, wow. Mm. I saw these in the theater for the first time, because you also got to remember... The prequels were announced as the special editions were coming out. So mm-hmm. it was part of to get me acclimated and excited. And I, I, I'll never forget this to my day. It was my grandfather sitting there in the theater. And I was four years old, and I still remember this. Muttering under his breath as the special edition was going. They changed that. They changed that. They changed that. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. But it's cool that I, I saw these in the theater just being the age that I am, although I didn't see the quote-unquote original versions and still never have. Hmm. And I have seen this that way. In fact, Karen and I both did together at a dome yeah. theater in Concord. Like, we oh, watched, that's right. Yeah. We watched the print get delivered in an armored car 
Mm-hmm. Um, and Garrett, you knew somebody who had to run, you had to cut it, you had to splice it, you had to reel it mm-hmm. up, and you, had, and you had to run it once to test to make sure that it worked. Yep. And there was like 10 of us in this huge theater getting to watch that special edition when it got re-released. I believe a marriage broke up that night. I believe <laughs> there was a lot of shit going on that night. Man. Yeah, that big-ass dome theater that they ended up taking down. But yeah, and I do remember, I mean, look, this was recorded off HBO when it was first released on cable. And so I do remember very vividly, I watched the hell out of that videotape, and I do remember the non-special edition. And I'll definitely talk about the differences when we get there. Although, if you know the difference between practical effects and 1997 CGI, you can probably pretty much guess which <laughs> what's changed and what's not. So we start off, we get the 20th Century Fox logo with fanfare and... I used to work for 20th Century Fox, as people who know me well know. And let me tell you, every single time I walked in that building, I would see this symbol, and I would hear this exact fanfare in my head every single time I walked by. (laughs) We get the long time ago in a galaxy far, far away pre-title card, and as it disappears, we get the start of composer John Williams' massive score. But before we get there, let's talk about this opening crawl. This, like so much of the movie, was different. And people associated with the movie, as you can imagine, didn't want any part of it. This was against standards and practices rules. You don't start movies off without giving credit to those who made it. But Lucas wanted to tell the story before the story of how we got here. So he wrote an opening crawl that he showed to his friends. And one of his friends, and Matt, I know you know which one. (laughs) Is it Coppola? De Palma. Oh yeah, De Palma. De Palma, he really put down the opening crawl. He's like, dude, you can't do this. And he kept telling Lucas that he needed to get to the point. So De Palma took it upon himself to rewrite it, but I'm telling you right now, you can probably count on one hand the amount of big movies that come out in a year that start off with opening credits, and that can all be attributed to this first bit of innovation, with a bit of tweaking by his friend De Palma. I love the way this movie starts. I think it's fantastic because the story, and we'll delve as we get into it, but the story of not starting at the beginning, because the beginning's boring, it's set up, who wants an origin story anymore? So... Doing this made you feel like you were jumping into a story that was already existing, and that was fascinating. You missed some, but you wanted to know what the journey was. You know, you weren't starting at the beginning of it. You were starting in the middle of it. Little did we know in 45 years we would learn all of it. (laughs) (laughs) And whether it was satisfying or not, we'll get into as we get into those movies. Matt, what about you, sir? Yeah, this is the Cliff Notes version as far as what, if you want more information, this is... This is the bare essentials, but I'm going to say something that I don't know if a lot of people will say when discussing Star Wars. I think George Lucas was right. I think that starting off with a wall of text immediately helps create the illusion that you're not watching a movie. You are immediately immersed in the world. If you had something like Superman, where it was the the wall of credits, yeah, I don't think it would have taken you out 100%, but by giving you not the origin of the empire or what's happening it just we're throwing you in and this was back when filmmakers gave you credit for being smart about following what mm-hmm. was happening and this is not the most detailed plot this is not the hardest thing to track and that's okay because as a tribute to serials and flash gordon and all the influences that went into star wars if you're going to copy that and use that as your influence then you have to keep it as straightforward as you can so as far as all the details to get you caught up to speed, hyperspeed if you want, it does everything it expects to. But my question is, because I watched this on Disney+, Plus, I don't own the physical media, when did they add the New Hope subtitle? 79 when they re-released it for theaters in the lead-up to Empire. 
was when they added that. So not long after this. That's when Lucas decided he was going to go ahead and make sequels. And in order to do that, he added the episode four. So this was 79, 80, around there. And it's crazy that it's it was done that early on because this is a big bone of contention. <laughs> yes. <laughs> People who call it Star Wars or call it A New Hope. But it's funny that this is not the only Lucas film that has decided to rename the first in a series, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, mm-hmm. once they knew that they had sequelitis on their hands. This podcast is getting posted as Star Wars, not A New Hope. <laughs> so that's how I feel about it, if that says anything. So the crawl is fast and is to the point. It tells us that a princess is on the run from one Darth Vader, with no mention of our other heroes, Luke and Han. De Palma was right. This was the way to go. Now, let me get back to when I first saw this. It's on the screen. I'm having my mom read the opening crawl to me. <laughs> Because I'm about two, three years old. <laughs> and right afterwards, on this massive TV we used to have, and Adam, you remember that, the one that was on the floor? Big one. The big, <laughs> the big ass wooden, one that was on the yes. floor? I'm seeing a ship fly by, followed by a massive ship that seemingly won't stop growing. I was so transfixed, to the point that no matter what it did from here on out, it wasn't going to lose me. If this had been 2001 A Space Odyssey, and that had been my introduction to on-screen spaceships, I might have rebelled. Because Kubrick was big, big on being so deliberate with the way ships flew in that movie, that half the movie is just watching them fly. Lucas wanted a faster pace with his ships, as because of what I detailed in the beginning stages of this podcast, he likes fast cars. He wanted to emulate that in space. It was the correct instinct, and if the dogfights in space later on were to mean anything, this was the correct instinct. It is such an amazing opening because the sheer sense of scale that you get with this Star Destroyer showing up is impressive as all hell. Watching it for this, like I was like, okay, yeah, I've seen this opening scene dozens of times, literally, and it's been spooked and parodied everywhere. Is it still going to hold? And man, I wish I could take myself back to seeing this for the first time because... That eclipsing of the blockade runner with that ship that we've never seen anything like, just this giant dagger stabbing out of the stars is impressive as all hell. Agreed. And I have not watched Star Wars or any of these movies in a considerable amount of time. I don't watch these with the regularity that 99% of the planet does. <laughs> so to be perfectly honest, there were parts where I felt like I was watching it for the first time, and it really helped me view this in the vacuum of a single movie. So after the huge introduction to the ships, we are introduced to our first heroes. Again, not Han, not Luke, but C-3PO and Real 2 Dial 2, or as he was known after <laughs> Lucas had that told to him during an editing session for American Graffiti, R2-D2. Now, again, it must be said, there was zero confidence from everyone on the set who were all convinced that this would be a massive flop. The studio was pumping $8 million, this is before Lucas had requested more, and counting into a project where these things called droids would never go on a straight line for more than a few inches and crumble, or they would crumble completely. If you see behind the scenes of this, it is insane how many times these fuckers crumble. And Mick Garris on his podcast, he actually worked on this movie. He did some PR for it. He did a lot of the behind the scenes stuff for it. He says that these droids never ever worked. Hmm. Anthony Daniels C-3PO suit, it would not allow him to rest comfortably. He had to lean on boards in between shots in order to keep his suit from digging into his skin. This caused fights between him and Lucas, as Lucas didn't even want Anthony Daniels to begin with. He wanted someone who could make 3PO a used car salesman type. But he eventually warmed up to him, and I'm glad he did. 3PO is a character that is needed in this franchise, as he keeps a lot of what happens grounded in his logic. And he's lived through the wars that have led up until now. That adds a lot of credibility to his approach to his conflicts, even as he tends to want to cower in corners. How do you guys feel about the introduction to these droids? So, one of the things that 
I think the franchise, I have to say, as, as one movie, it is really, by starting off with the droids, it is, it is their story. And everything that happens with this plot is predicated on there is the mission, but there is also the spontaneity of them being captured by the Jawas. If that did not happen, the Empire would, in all likelihood, win the day, and the Rebellion would be crushed. So I like that everything in this plot, for what we get, is both done through characterization, but there's also that bit of what if. There is sort of an alternate reality, timeline, multiverse thing you could do with this movie. Lucasfilm slash Disney, not that I want that, so please don't take that. With Please don't take that. <laughs> there is a thing with the droids where there are obvious metaphors for slavery that I really appreciate in this singular movie, and that's something we'll definitely talk about in the films to come. I like that Lucas is in the same way that something like Harry Potter would put in some allegories. He wasn't afraid to do it here without distracting from the struggle of what's happening. Although I have to say, C-3PO gets on my nerves. There are parts of this movie, even when other characters are trying their best to just get along with him, I half expected when they got on the Falcon after escaping the Death Star, Luke and company would leave him for dead. Because he almost fucked everything up. <laughs> I can see that. Although I think that starts more in the next couple films. I, I think here he's okay. But Adam, what about you? I gotta say, even as a little kid, I was never a big fan of the droids. It just weren't my cup of tea. There are some droids that I like throughout the series, but these two, basically neither one of them, really ever worked for me, and that's sad. But I think it is important, and Matt brought it up, this is their story, kind of. They are the through line, literally the through line when we go back and discuss prequels and sequels, but they're the ones that we're going to follow throughout, and everything kind of happens around them. It's interesting that way. We see that the ship is stuck in a tractor beam, pulling it into the Star Destroyer, which causes the ship to be boarded, and we get a battle pretty much off the bat that just works on all cylinders for me, and something I didn't really put together as, until I got older is that I think Lucas is really playing off the fact that we were coming off the after effects of the Vietnam War here. This fight is one that, for the first and only time really in this first trilogy, the Stormtroopers win. This film becomes a battle between good guys and bad guys, and this is not the happiest of endings for the Rebel troops. I dig this first battle a lot it's kind of crazy right isn't it how there's not another battle that really goes this way where mm. stormtroopers just come in and just slaughter an entire slew of people they're accurate they're vicious for those that don't know their history they're stormtroopers you know that's taken from germany that's taken from world war ii and they are every bit those vicious uniforms coming through that airlock and just mowing down a hallway and it's still ridiculously effective and yeah, I mean, this is space opera, space battle, but great stuff. Yeah, it's definitely, the Empire is a big allegory for Nazi Germany. Yeah. Fascism reigns on the Empire, which it works for this material. But you're right about the battle, and it's also weird in this movie, as much as I was able to watch it in a vacuum, so to speak. It's so weird when you see the stormtroopers able to hit people, and yes. Obi-Wan Obi has that line about their precision when they go to the remnants <laughs> of the Sandcrawler. I'm like... <laughs> Gee, remember when the Empire was actually threatening 
(laughs) (laughs) The battle ends with a massive explosion within its corridors, and it is through this smoke we are introduced to the villain, or hero, depending on how you look at it, of this trilogy, Darth Vader. Now, this character becomes a foil for our heroes as we get deeper into this trilogy, but I cannot say enough about how much I love his introduction. And I used to have a picture storybook, as well as a book and record version of the story, and in every depiction, we are seeing Darth Vader walk through this smoke. It is a powerful image that, despite what we will talk about when it comes to what this character becomes, is still my lasting impression of him. I love this introduction to Vader. He also doesn't say anything, which is very Mm. important. He just walks in, looks around, assesses the damage, and just goes about his business. He is the, you know, as, as difficult as it is to watch this independent, I think this is still my favorite depiction of Vader, because I like him most when he is both in charge, but there's clearly a hierarchical structure where he is not running everything. He is the odd job of this movie. You know? Yeah, he's a henchman. Yeah, he is <laughs> yeah. He is the heavy. He is the muscle. But he's also that pious religious guy at the office who pisses everyone off when he talks about, <laughs> he talks about Jesus. Because <laughs> I like that he gives the Empire a bit of mysticism. It's sort of like an Avatar The Last Airbender where you have, you know, the Fire Nation, which are very militaristic, but you have Zuko's uncle, who is, you know, the spiritualist. Not necessarily evil, but I also like Vader as just the embodiment of pure evil. It's okay that there's not a lot of character to him in this movie, because those villains, look at Flash Gordon, he's not a racist stereotype like Ming, among other things. So right away, that's a feather in his cap. And his outfit, his costume, mixes both Lucas's love of Kurosawa, the samurai aspects, but there's also part of that helmet is shaped like some of the SS shock troopers that you would see. So Lucas does everything right, and this is probably, yeah, I'll say it, this is still my favorite version of Vader in any of the movies. I don't think you have a better introduction of a character in cinema. The discussion that I had recently with somebody online was like, best scene intros, and Vader was in the top ten. But I'm like, it's not just Vader who walks in menacingly and powerful at everything else after he sent his people to do everything they just did. The John Williams being such a character in this movie sells this so well. The change of tone with the music and everything else is just as powerful as what David Prowse is bringing to this physical performance before we get Mufasa even starting to speak. Oh, yeah. I have notes about that as we get into it. So we are then introduced to our brawless princess, Princess Leia. Now, Carrie Fisher, the daughter of disgrace by her father to bang Elizabeth Taylor, Debbie Reynolds, had entered the double audition that we talked about way back when we covered Carrie for Binge. And she wanted to play Carrie because, get it? Carrie, Carrie. But she was more than happy when she got the call to be this princess until George told her that she wouldn't be wearing a bra in space. No wonder we're in space. (laughs) Yeah, if that was his reasoning. She's more than up to the task, though, of dealing with all the masculinity around her. I do really like her in this role, in this movie in particular. She's fantastic. I like, again, that Lucas is a distressed princess. That goes back fairy tales. That's not even science fiction, per se. But she's also not helpless. She can handle herself. She has the wherewithal to send the plans on the droids who can't be scanned. So I like everything that's set up. And of course, I love Carrie Fisher as much as everybody does. Everything about her works, except I want to understand the hairstyling. I want to know who justified that decision. Well, it was Lucas trying to be different. 
honestly. You got to look at it like this. And this, I, I thought about this a lot, and I actually found some things that justified this. Look at all the 70s haircuts you have in this movie. This is something that's different. It's something different to look at. And her costuming, braless or not, that first shot of her where she's bending down and putting the plans into the R2-D2 is just fantastic because it, it says a lot with that one image. So I think it was just because we didn't want to be the same hairdo as everybody else. I think the concept art for this movie is just as important as anything that George Lucas did on his end. I think what Ralph McQuarrie did with the designs, and that leads into this Flash Gordon takeoff. I mean, let's be honest. He couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon. He's like, fine, I'm going to write my own. And he sure as hell did. And I think by going so conceptually with the art, you've got some of these amazing designs. And I do think there was still a lot of... I think it shows up again starting in 97. I do think there's a lot of sexism towards seeing how they can treat some of the women with their hair and outfits and stuff like that. But it stands out so well and it's so iconic. But I think it's because Carrie Fisher works it. She's not a damsel. And that is so important Mm. for fucking women everywhere. Not just this movie, but the way that Carrie Fisher plays this role is stunning. Yeah, she's not Princess Peach. Yep. There was a version of this movie where she is... Because you have to remember, her being rescued is not the priority. Because mm-hmm. she knows she's about to be captured in all likelihood because the ship has already been sucked in with the tractor beam. So she knows she will be handed over to the Empire. So it is more important for her and the side she's on to get the plans out of there than it is to save her own skin, which is also a thing that I respond to with this character is that she'll put the cause above herself, which is also, I think, one of the reasons why this character endured and is still the standard in a lot of ways for when people want to write fantastical female leads. Mm -hmm. Definitely a standard bearer. So Leia puts what we will eventually find out is the rebel plans to the Death Star and to the R2 unit. And as she's trying to hide from the troops, she's found. And for the first and only time in this damn series, the troops set their guns to stun. (laughs) Yeah, it becomes Star Trek all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. This is something they will never do again. But while all this is going on, Vader is lifting up rebel soldiers, trying to interrogate them into talking about the whereabouts of the plans. And something else about this depiction of Vader that really stood out to me is at this point, again, as you guys have already mentioned, but it's almost like he's a foot soldier. He is doing this not at his own behest. He's really working for Grand Moff Tarkin, and as we'll find out in later films, the Emperor. I use odd job. He's also sort of the, to talk about Raiders, he's the guy that has the metal burned on his hand. Yes. He's like, oh, oh, I can't like, that, like the head of the Gestapo. And he's also, unlike some of the things we'll get later on, he's very nonchalant about just offing people. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what I like so much about this movie is that if you piss him off, there is no way you can talk yourself out of this. And mm-hmm. the only reason why someone survives later on is because his superior says to let him go. Exactly. We then see the two droids getting into the escape pod as R2 is saying that they now have a new mission and 3PO is just confused. But he goes along with it and the pod's away. Yet despite this being forbidden for these droids to do, the pod isn't shown as having any life forms. And instead of ending everything here, the soldiers that man the gunners, they let the pod go. (laughs) It was a malfunction. (laughs) Because they're somehow getting paid per space bullet (laughs) per laser blast. (laughs) 
Leia meets up with Vader, and she still won't give up that they're on a diplomatic mission and not actually working for the rebellion. You just have to admire her stubbornness to just not give up her place in this war. Like, she just won't do it, even with Vader in front of her. Vader then gets word that an escape pod was launched, and I feel bad for the two saps that let this pod go, because you know Vader's gonna fucking just kill him here in about five minutes. He's also smart because he realized just because there's no life forms doesn't mean there was nothing of value. So go follow that escape pod. So even though Vader is not the end-all, be-all villain, he's strategic in how he operates. He's not a moron whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. We then cut to Tatooine as the droids and people in the suits. Oh, God, they're just so hot. These poor bastards. I know. There's a line that 3PO has. We are made to suffer. That is the <laughs> mission statement for droids in this entire franchise. Absolutely. They trek along and fight as they go. They fight so much that the two droids, they end up separating, and they both end up getting captured by Jawas, these little fuckers. Like all couples do from time to time. Exactly. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was so angry at 3PO when he kicked R2. What are you doing? That's your friend. <laughs> He just rears yeah, back well, and kicks him. As we find out, R2-D2 takes the high road, though, because we see that he's packing some heat later yes. on in this scene. He could have very easily fried 3PO and left him dead. 3PO, he looks up and he sees R2, and he can't hide his joy at seeing his friend alive. And that's what I really like about this dynamic is, yes, they will fight it out three out of four times. But that fourth time, it's always apparent that there's a sort of respect and a huge dose of friendship that is just undeniable. Lord knows I've had friends like that, two of which are on this podcast with me right now. <laughs> yeah, I just love the dynamic between these two. Adam, I know you don't like it, but Matt, you're kind of going along with this, right? Yeah, well, I also love, for one thing, the production design of these sand crawlers, where they're, they're giant parallelograms that just operate <laughs> like dump trucks, and the Jawas are very distinctive. Like, I, I hear that voice, I immediately know what it's from mm -hmm. and they're also george lucas was able to do something where there's a race of characters who are not oh stereotypes especially you know you mentioned the vietnam parallels they easily could have been the Viet Cong. yeah we're seeing troops search for the plans as one comes across a part of a droid so now they know that there are droids involved 3po he bops r2 in the head to wake him up as jawas come in and assess them for the market and then we meet Luke Skywalker. Now, a couple interesting things about this character. One, I feel it was the end for Lucas as he wrote this. Luke, Lucas. I never really put that together until I was doing research for this podcast. So this feels like the character that he wrote for him. Another thing, originally, this was not the first time we see this character. In that storybook I used to have, and in the deleted scenes that's actually on YouTube and on the Blu-ray set, Luke can be seen immediately after this ship is shot in the beginning with a hat and a huge pair of binoculars looking up and watching the battle. I'm not sure why they cut that, maybe to not make him as wide-eyed as he appears here, but I always wondered about that. And in that book... There is also a scene with him and Biggs, where they establish their friendship as well as their hopes and dreams. Not of working for the Rebels, by the way. Biggs just got into the Empire. That's their goal. All of this makes the meeting they have when they get to Yavin make a hell of a lot more sense, you know, when Biggs is like, Hey, Luke, it's good to see you again. Adam, were you familiar with that friendship that was established here before we he, they eventually ended up cutting it out? I am, but I only learned of that much later, seeing documentaries and reading behind the scenes and extra stuff, yeah. And while I think it's an interesting choice, I mean, Luke is the quote-unquote hero of the movie. You know, to introduce him this far into it is... A different type of choice you didn't see very often, but I think it's very, very effective. I do think it's important to see, and it's glossed over. Most people don't realize that, yeah, Luke is trying to get off this planet to go join the Empire. That is his goal. That's what he mm -hmm. wants to do. And the other hero that we meet in this 
used to be an Empire pilot. So you have these people who it's not just a black and white world for what these people know and being conned by the governments that they know. And I don't think it needs to be fleshed out because this is a sci-fi fantasy, but I do think when you want to delve into religious allegories and you want to delve into political allegories in these movies, they're right there for you. I had no idea about that context until just now, so you're opening my perspective a bit. I like, as Adam mentioned, the Empire is basically an allegory for the military-industrial complex slash fascism. So it makes sense that in an area this rural and with nothing to do, aspirations would be to go make something of yourself, and the only way to do that is to serve the greater good, which is actually doing terrible things. This also ties into my thought on Star Wars. What I like so much about this movie and this, my favorite stuff of this movie are the components that have to do with historical allegory, and in particular, westerns slash samurai. I like the farm boy gets caught up in something bigger than themselves. That's very fairy taleish, and the other hero is basically Clint Eastwood's early rules. My least favorite stuff is all the Force mumbo-jumbo. Because for me, all Star Wars is is fantasy with primer of science fiction. The edges are the sci-fi. The heart of it is, is fantasy more than anything else. And I like that stuff more than the mumbo-jumbo, the ooga-booga shit to quote Child's Play back in the day. <laughs> I think Jedi are fucking stupid, which we'll talk about for the next three months, however long this goes. So setting it on a desert like the Old West, that's the stuff I like. Little did I know that fucking Tatooine would be the, <laughs> Every the single center one. of the entire Star Wars universe. <laughs> 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 yeah, Luke wants to get off this planet. Me too, buddy. Me too. Yeah, so <laughs> Let's talk about this casting, which is actually an interesting story. Originally, Robert England, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger, he auditioned for this part. Didn't get it, but he oh, decided God, to let his room... You want to call Leia bitch throughout this entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> so he decided to let his roommate, who had just gotten a part on the 8 It Is Enough pilot, know about it. This was, of course, Mark Hamill. But Hamill was feeling okay with being on 8 Is Enough as it was a job. But England was pretty much sick of seeing Hamill on his couch every day and convinced him to audition for the part. Others who were up for this include Kurt Russell, Charles Martin Smith from American Graffiti, and William Catt, who, of course, would end up in De Palma's Carry. Hmm. Uh, Believe it or not. <laughs> you keep bringing that up every single fucking time. You know, it's great. I got to say, if anybody has not watched the documentary, Disney Plus has it on. It's been quite long. I want to say it's a good four-hour documentary. You can see the test footage or the, the readings mm -hmm. with Kurt Russell and with William Catt. And they're quite good. They really are well done. There is a world where Kurt Russell gets this role. And yeah. that is yeah. fascinating. There's also a world where Kurt Russell is Han Solo, I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Good yep. point. I think he ended up playing that throughout the 80s, actually. He's Han Solo meets Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Doesn't <laughs> the Millennium Falcon. He gets the Porkchop Express. How do we feel about Mark Hamill in this role, boys? Uh, he's okay. Not that Mark Hamill is the greatest actor in the world. He's fine. But it's also on Lucas. Lucas is not the greatest with directing actors. And Mark Hamill was not the most experienced. He had done stuff, I think he had a bit role on General Hospital, of all things. And, and, you know, if you like Mark Hamill, Star Wars is really the biggest thing as far as live action. So you compare that to his prolificity as a voiceover actor. I was going to say, we, me and you have covered Mark Hamill so many times, but we've never covered him on Star Wars. We covered him in a child's play. We covered him as the Joker. 
Bro, we never covered Star we'll Wars. Do Avatar, we'll do Avatar eventually, but... You know, yeah. He's, he, he's believable as a teenager, which is also an important thing about Luke, is that he's still young. And it, it's kind of crazy, you know, you talk about... Lucas always says poetry, it rhymes. The fact that George Lucas and Mark Hamill were both in very bad car accidents... Yeah. ...is also kind of scary, because that happened, what, right after this movie released? Right after. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is why the holiday special, he looks like a mannequin. <laughs> Adam, how do you feel about Mark Hamill here, sir? I think Mark Hamill is a dang good actor when he's in a vocal booth. <laughs> um, he's, he, you know what? It messed that he's fine, but I think when he's in front of a camera and he's trying to act to a camera, I don't think he does his best work. I think, though, the big problem is I think he is overshadowed by everybody else that is in this film. He is mm. overshadowed by the damsel he's trying to rescue. He's overshadowed by the rogue that he's going to take alongside him. He's overshadowed by the villain. He's overshadowed by the villain's boss. Overshadowed Luke by is, his teacher. Yeah. <laughs> he's overshadowed by the seven-foot walking carpet, literally. <laughs> he is the least interesting person, and it's he's the hero of the story. And I just think that's the issue with it. He's not bad, but at the end of it, you want the Luke toy to fill out the set, but it's not uh -huh. the one you ran to. Absolutely. I want to get to the toy I really wanted here in a little bit. So here we're seeing Luke with his Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen as he whines that he couldn't go to the Tossie station to pick up some power converters. And he's stuck trying to find droids that can help him around the farm and speak bocce. So originally they decided on 3PO and this red droid, which would separate 3PO and R2. But as the red one rolls away, it blows up. <laughs> Why? It's so random. It's so random that as a kid, I used to think that maybe R2 set up a device that made this happen. But it's actually just a random thing that prevents these two from being separated. You know, though, this is behind the scene. So 25 years ago-ish. I don't know if it was your mom made both of us an Easter basket and put in a Star Wars toy, and you got R5-D4. I did. <laughs> yes. Which it. I still have. And I think I got R2, and you were like, uh-uh, I want this one because nobody else respects and appreciates this droid. <laughs> Amazing the things you remember. Oh, my God. <laughs> so after this happens, 3PO says that the blue one is actually the best fit, and we're off and running. That's 3PO saying, if I'm being sold into slavery, I'm taking you with me, R2. <laughs> <laughs> Never looked at it like that, but you're right. 3PO takes a much-needed bath as Luke cleans up R2, and this is when we see Luke flying a toy ship, just as I did as a kid, and he learns his first real connections to the star battles he wants to join are right here. R2 and 3PO, they have been amongst them, and Luke is desperate to learn more about the battles they've been in. But as he questions them, he lets loose of something that triggers Leia begging Obi-Wan to help her, as he's her only hope. Luke gets smitten with her, more on this later, <laughs> as he's called down to eat. <laughs> and while eating, he says that he opened a message from R2 that made reference to Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Owen tells him that he died around the same time that his father did, and he's just trying to put this to bed. He then tells Luke that he needs him for another season, once again making him put off his dream of entering the Academy. And a very poignant moment happens here as Baru tells Owen that Luke isn't a farmer due to him having too much of his father in him, and Owen just looks up and replies, that's what I'm afraid of. I've Uncle, always liked this scene. Uncle Owen and Baru do a great job of making this feel real. In a way, they bring some weight to the scene. They make you feel like there's something out there, something more. 
In the same way that the characters we had playing Pa Kent and Martha Kent and Superman really ground that made you feel like there was some reality to it, that's how I feel with Uncle Owen and Amperu here in this house. Great point. Plus, blue milk. Yeah. It's also not a nonchalant detail that Luke is living with his aunt and uncle. That's an actual part of his character that his father is not in the picture, dead. He's being raised by people who took him on. Because I think that's also very important to Luke's desire to leave. It's that whole thing of like, yeah, you're my family, but it's not like you're my parents, per se. It adds to his, pardon the pun, rebellious, aspirational nature of leaving. Mm -hmm. It's an efficient way to get it across. That his father's gone, that his father was rebellious, the same way that he is living with his family. It's just, it tells so much in a short amount of time by the way it's written. Remember when Lucas gave information without over-explaining? (laughs) (laughs) but what's weird is here doesn't like he had a choice (laughs) he was way against the wall here (laughs) thank you martha lucas for your editing chops Marsha, absolutely, and I'm definitely getting there. From here, Luke says it looks like he's going nowhere, and the very next scene is we see Luke walk up a hill, throwing a bit of a temper tantrum as he sees the setting of the two moons. This is quite the scene, because Lord knows when I'm knocked down, I think of this scene to bring me up, because all Hamill's portraying here is a boy with a dream, and what boy doesn't have that? This is tremendous. What do you guys think about this scene here of Luke going up here on this hill? still gives me chills. When I see it, when I hear that music, the twin suns, the sunset, it is such an amazing piece. The way it's framed, the effects work to get this in here, the mat, the layering, and just the music, the swell of this is so freaking emotional. It still hits me. It is one of my probably top three Williams pieces as well. And I half expected him to break out in song like those Disney cartoons. That's kind of the beat it's playing. Like the holiday special? Never mind. Well, I don't think we see B. Arthur in this cantina at about this. No, you do not. Although she's there somewhere, I'm sure. Adam brought it up. I think this is a great time to talk about the score for this film. So, Lucas was intent on using a temp score for this, much like Kubrick did with 2001. But his buddy Steven Spielberg had just worked with John Williams on Jaws and recommended him for this movie, saying he would add a lot to it. Lucas took him up on it, and immediately the music has a lasting impact on you. I had the record albums, and Adam can attest to this, to all three of these movies, and there is a reason. Williams has themes for everyone here. Not really Vader yet. We'll get that next week. But the way he tells the story with his music and themes is, I would argue, almost as, if not more effective, than what Lucas does with his writing and directing. That being said, while there are music cues and things I like about this score, Williams would get more nuanced as the series moved ahead, and his music would get better as a result. This is the least of the three original scores, but that's not to say it is less effective. I love this score. Matt, you you were really big on scores a couple months ago when we talked about Superman. Did this one really impact you? Certain parts, like this and the Cantina song, I think are the biggest pieces, but much like the writing and the storytelling, the score compositions got more sophisticated as we go along. So I like that all the music in this movie for something that is a very straightforward narrative is also not the most melodically sophisticated to compose. So I think they complement each other well. It's like poetry, it rhymes. (laughs) You know, it's amazing, and I I think... Spielberg helped his buddy out huge, but I also think a big part of Jaws was Williams. It is successful and as great as Jaws may be, the music is a huge component. And for Star Wars, the music is a huge component. Garrett, we finally got figured out what it takes to get Matt to talk about scores. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> John Williams? Yeah. John Williams. <laughs> There's a reason he's the maestro. There's a reason he's the best that he is. I'm going to regret that I never get a chance to see him live. 
You know, I was hoping to to catch him down at the Hollywood Bowl a few years ago. Fuck you, COVID. And I'm worried that time's going to run out. But there's nobody like John Williams, and I don't think there will be again. So as Luke walks back to his house, he sees 3PO, who's despondent because he can't find R2 as he has run away. Funny bit of trivia in the scenes where 3PO is in the land speeder with Luke. That is actually a very skinny girl in a 3PO suit, just so that they could save room in this little tiny (laughs) vehicle. (laughs) So did they ever explain why he runs off, or is he just satisfied being R2, fuck you, to 3PO? <laughs> yeah, I don't think they ever break it down. They just wake up, and he's just fucked off and gone. He's, he's fucked off and gone. Yeah, absolutely. He, he doesn't see himself being able to bring these plans to where they need to go with these two. So he's like, fuck you guys. I'll just go do it myself. Because right. it's, according to him, it looks like Luke is stuck here. He's not going to be able to get him unless he does it himself. That's the way I took it. Yeah, I do think you could take it that he's got a mission and he's going to go fulfill that mission. And that's mm-hmm. deliver the plans. Because he is headed towards where Obi-Wan is when you realize that. We then see who will become to know as Sand People, getting on massive banthas and going on a hunt. 3PO and Luke, they find R2 and he starts freaking out right as Luke is attacked. And another funny bit of trivia is just as one gets him down and raises his hands above his head three times. He actually did that only once, and they just edited it to make it look like it was three times. <laughs> I love that fact that we were so, they were so it's short amazing. shots. They just kept flipping yeah. it back and forth. The editing but this thing. brings up a point, and something that really needs to be brought up. You guys mentioned it earlier, but I want to mention it now. It is, again, widely known that no one gave this movie a chance of being successful. During filming, Lucas fought tooth and nail with the cinematographer Gilbert Taylor, who worked with Kubrick on Doctor Strangelove, actually about how and why scenes were to be shot and lit. But another person Lucas fought with was the editor, who he eventually fired and then put his wife, Marsha, who was an experienced editor at the time, his then wife, I should say, in charge of that stage of production. And it is widely believed by many who worked on this movie in interviews and everything that that decision saved this film. Because the editing of this movie is a lot of what saved it from being a disaster. This Tuscan Raider scene just being a tiny example of that. And, you know, I think that comes with Lucas's, he's not known as the most affable guy on set. And this was shot over in England. And when you shoot in England, much like shooting in Canada, you're required to take a huge percentage of English actors, which is why a lot of them are that way, and crew. And George Lucas is the faster, more intense, let's keep going. And when they have to stop for a tea break, which is mandated and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, he would lose his mind. Yeah, and I, I believe that with every ounce of fiber when you look at Marshall Lucas was the editor on a lot of Scorsese's early work. But also, Lucas, I think, was smart to surround himself during this period of people who knew what they were doing and could help hide his negatives or lack of experience as a filmmaker. You look at the editing, you look at some of the actors who can make this dialogue presentable, you look at the cinematography obviously the music. There's a lot here to help mask the fact that Lucas was really flying by the seat of his pants when making this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shoot, you look at Ralph McQuarrie doing the art to get the funding for this film. You don't bring him on to do those book of sketches. This movie never exists. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you're exactly right. He surrounded himself with the right people for this film. Now, it is immediately after this scene and the uh, rating of their supplies that we meet who we have heard reference to for a lot of this first 30 minutes or so of this film, the one and only Ben Kenobi, a.k.a. Obi-Wan Kenobi, a.k.a. Sir Alec Guinness. 
So let's talk about Guinness here. By all account of the actors who worked on this movie, Guinness was a gentleman and a scholar. He was respectful. He told the young cast and crew not to not call him Sir Alec, and he blended in nicely. But outside of this production, Alec Guinness was a bit of a curmudgeon. He took this movie mostly because he was trying to find funding for a play he was working on in London, and he really needed the money. And he famously told a 12-year-old boy who asked him for his autograph and boasted that he had seen Star Wars at least 100 times that he would sign the autograph if he promised to never watch that movie again. <laughs> And there are stories of how Lucas basically had to plead and beg for him to come back the other two times he does in the series. We'll get to those. But I'm here to say, watching this movie, trying to put all that in my mind, he is excellent as Obi-Wan Kenobi. He says the lines as if they're old and wise, and he truly comes off well as this old Jedi who was just trying to shake off a life in a war in space that he just doesn't want to be a part of anymore. How do we feel about Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan, boys? I think it's important for this movie that they cast someone of his ilk, especially because so much of the dialogue is stilted and your principal lead was so inexperienced. He's sort of the guide both as an acting coach as much as he is a Jedi. I also like that when Obi-Wan is introduced, he's initially reluctant to get back into the swing of things because he, he's like Danny Glover, I'm too old for this shit. But he also, when he gets swept up into this. He doesn't go right back to how he used to be. He still feels weathered. So I'm glad that, yeah, they talk about the Force, but that doesn't mean he can get back into fighting shape like he's got the stamina of a 25-year-old person. He still feels old and weathered. So he fills the role, but again, the Force and the, the, the Jedi mumbo-jumbo is kind of my least favorite part of this particular movie. I think he delivers these lines pretty well when it comes to the Force and things. I mean, if it was delivered by anyone else, I think it, they would come off as bad but i think he does well with this i think this is that one it's that classic character it's the samurai up in the mountains that has been taken from other works i think sir alec guinness does a good job with it the stories of how much he hated working on this are <laughs> funny but he brings a legitimacy at this point to the fantasy part of what is being told this religion which is the force he legitimizes it by being this weathered old man who has lived through it i can't think of well there's very few people at this time who I think would have done a better job. One of them does a worse job when we get him later on in the series, but I think at this point he would have been amazing. But, I mean, I think Alex Guinness, I don't know him from anything else, which is sad because I know he's got a long body of work, but he's Obi-Wan. He has an Oscar. Period. Yeah. Uh, funny Alex Guinness story. He was on Letterman probably in 83, 84, right, right after Jedi, and Dave asked him to say, may the Force be with you. <laughs> Alec Guinness looked at him like Dave just set fire to his house. <laughs> he did it, Harrison, but he was like, Harrison God Ford probably it. looks up to him so much. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Here, Kenobi fends off the Sand People and is very taken by R2, as when he hears his beep and whistle, the hood comes off. He wakes Luke up, and Luke tells him that R2 was looking for Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then Ben replies, he should know if he's seen him, because he is actually Obi-Wan himself. Looking for Obi-Wan? Nah, I got a Ben Kenobi, but it can't be Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> they find 3PO with a broken arm, and 3PO just proclaims to be done for. And I love the chirp from R2 that's like, you are? <laughs> so fantastic. We then cut to Obi-Wan's house as Luke starts putting 3PO back together. And here's a scene that still to this day, it captivates me each and every time I watch it. It is the scene where Ben Kenobi explains the Clone Wars and then just blatantly lies to Luke about what happened to his father. This Parts of this are in the intro to this podcast. We'll get back to this as we get deeper into the series. But I do love this scene because of the way Guinness tells it. He makes all of this sound so cool. And we'll get to whether that's true later on down the line. 
But he also introduces something I really wanted to know about. By getting Guinness to be the one who brings up the force, you are making it seem exactly like the energy field he is exclaiming it to be. And you really want to have it. God damn it. I always wanted to open moving sliding doors just by moving my hand. <laughs> and he makes it sound like you actually can. Matt, I'm, I'm assuming you don't like any of this stuff because you don't like any of the mystical quality to it. Well, I like his exposition about the backstory with him and Luke's father and the Clone Wars because it tells you everything you need to know because it's very straightforward, much like the title crawl. The Jedi were keepers of peace. Your father was a great pilot and a good friend. I don't need to see anything else. Personally, I think everything that I needed to know for information is there. And we'll poke plenty of holes into this. wonder how rehearsed this story was when you learned the, the true stories. <laughs> I picture Obi-Wan sitting in his hut like, all right, the day is going to come when Luke will run into me. How do I talk my way out of what actually happened? <laughs> I think that's, that's what the Obi-Wan TV show should have been about. Him with a giant whiteboard of, okay, how do I spin this to still make myself sound good and get off scot-free? I love that this is the explanation we got for the Clone Wars, because it's all we need. You know there's a yeah. war, you know it happened. What you created in your mind is always enough, or could be, or could be told on the written page where it could be fleshed out in the way of a war. But it's also, he's that old man and that's just, I was in war, I don't want to talk about it very much. And... I have family members like that, so it kind of felt right. A lot of people don't know that Guinness was coming off an Oscar win almost 20 years before for The Bridge on River Kwai, and he was actually nominated again for this part. And I think the way he tells his story is a big reason why. He just captivates you with his words. We also see the passing of Luke's father's lightsaber, which isn't as clumsy or as random as a blaster. And then we get the rest of the message from Leia as she begs for Obi-Wan's help in getting the plans she put in the R2 unit to her home planet of Alderaan. And this is when Kenobi tells Luke to come with him to Alderaan as he's getting too old to run these types of errands. But Luke says he needs to get home and Kenobi tells him that he needs to learn about the Force. This is the one piece of inconsistent writing. Luke has always been about getting off this planet. And all of a sudden, now that he has this opportunity, he's like, oh, I got to get back home. Yep, streetlights are coming on. I think what sets this up, though, is the conversation he had with his uncle right before this. Yeah, it is his ticket out, but his uncle's making it sound like, you know what? I can't survive without you here. And he feels obligated to. Isn't that the point of the droids? Yeah, of course. And he's going to learn that. But he doesn't know exactly how far that reaches until a few minutes later. We then cut to a Senate meeting where we are getting a lot of little nuggets being dropped in this little conversation. And this is where we hear the Emperor's name being dropped for the first time. And we also learning that Vader is not really respected here. The Force is being called Sorcerer's Ways and an ancient religion. We're also being introduced to Van Helsing himself, Peter Cushing, his own Grand Moff Tarkin. Now, Cushing was another one that the whole cast, especially Fisher, really loved working with as he was a gentleman's gentleman. He was professional yet kind, but man, can he play evil well. I'm sad that we never see another performance like this as someone who, as Leia puts it later, is holding Vader's leash because each time he talks, it's emphatic, and I miss him when he's not here. How do we feel about this scene and this introduction to Grand Moff Tarkin here, boys? I think he's superb. The way he cuts every word when he's talking, his air of haughtiness, the way his nose is lifted and still looking down at everybody below him, but even the way that it's shot. It's a sense of regal air for the most evil person that we have. You know, Let's remember here in a little bit of who destroys a planet, and it's this guy here that actually does it. And Tarkin is just remarkable, and he's Vader's boss. 
for all the Vader being the ultimate badass. He's this guy's bitch. As far as blocking and the way it's shot, I also love that, if you notice, in almost all of Tarkin's scenes, Vader is in them, too, standing behind him. Mm-hmm. There's very few parts where it's just Tarkin by himself, but I also think that emphasizes how Vader is at Tarkin's beck and call with a word. And I also like how he just walks into that room and immediately knows what they're talking about. <laughs> so he must have tremendous hearing, or he was just waiting outside, waiting for someone to slip up before he could correct them. <laughs> but this ties into what I said earlier when Vader shows up, how everyone, he's like the Jesus guy in the office, where it's like, oh my God, stop talking about the Force. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That one guy's like I said, he's he's calling it Sorcerer's Ways, and he's just like, nothing matches the power of the Force. <laughs> yep, he's like, even though we have technology that can destroy a planet, this invisible energy is somehow more powerful. I mean, look, if I was the, those officers, I'd kind of find that hard to swallow. And like yeah, I said... So does he. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a question about the universe. As we'll learn later, not to go too far and retract my previous comments. So this is 30 years after, as we'll find out, Revenge of the Sith, right? Mm-hmm. So it took 30 years for the Force and the Jedi to become an ancient religion? I would say 20. Well, if it's, yeah, if it's 10 years, mm-hmm. you would regret yeah, I mean, Al Giddis in 10 years. I don't know. Like, Again, we'll have to, we'll have to keep that in mind when we go through the movies. 20 years? <laughs> yeah, we'll meet in the middle and say it's 20. Yeah. Luke comes to the conclusion that if the troops traced the droids here, they found out that they were sold to his aunt and uncle. So he travels to their house and sees that not only was the entire place burned to the ground, their corpses are right here, also burnt to a crisp. And we mentioned earlier, Hamill is never going to be proclaimed as a master thespian, but I think the look on his face combined with the Williams score that accompanies it says all that is need to be said when he spots his aunt and uncle like this. Luke has no future here. Yes, yeah, one that it's hard to believe. There's smoking skeletons. Yes. They're in the ground, and I don't think they'd have the nerve to do that in a Star Wars anything right now, but it's effective. It's damn effective. I think it's the scene that makes this go from a G movie to a PG movie, honestly. I think you could make a case that it could be a G-rated movie without the scene. I think the only, like, Andor, I think, is the closest thing that you would get something this graphic in Star Wars. I don't think you'd see that in a movie. In fact, you don't see anything like that in the recent stuff. But, yeah, you're right. This is the moment where it's like, okay, there is nothing left for you. It is time to go. So it's sad, but it's also one of the things that I actually think, of all things, the Obi-Wan TV show actually made this more impactful, surprisingly. They're in the prequels, but it doesn't give a lot in the way of emotional support. But we'll talk about that in six months. (laughs) We then cut to Leia being tortured. My question is this. How the hell didn't she either A, give away the plans, or B, die from this needle that Vader's sending to her? <laughs> this is this is pretty crazy, yeah. too. I assume this is truth serum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I took so, it. Clearly, I guess her force Jedi instincts that she has oh boy. maybe kept her from flipping. Oh, boy. We see Luke tell Kenobi there's no future for him here, and he wants to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like his father. We see the speeder being stopped by troops, and I love this scene, because it is really the very first time we're seeing the Force in action. The look on Luke's face as Kenobi is talking to these troops mirrored mine as a kid, because all I thought was, wow, how cool would it be to make these guys just not see what was sitting directly in front of them? (laughs) You know, like, point them in the way that you want them to go. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's growing that mysticism about it, and I think it's great that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's literally like magic at sleight of hand. Absolutely. 
They stop by Moss Eisley's spaceport, where the droids are told to wait outside. And this whole introduction and look inside this cantina was another moment when everybody thought this production was doomed. Lucas told all his effects artists to bring any alien mask they had. But, of course, Rick Baker, who was a new makeup effects artist at this time, he brought a Wolfman mask for this massive close-up. And Lucas absolutely hated it and cut it out of future editions. But you can still see it in the background. And I, I love that they actually have the freaking wolf man yeah. in there. As a kid, this thing was awesome. Badass. Absolutely was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is another great scene. And for those uninitiated with this world, when this original film was coming out, you certainly had an idea of what you were in for, but you didn't expect something like this. You know, you're going inside a bar in space. It's pretty awesome. And it must also be said, too, that this was before toys were on the massive market. So all of these creatures are here to enhance a world, not sell toys, like we'll definitely see and talk about later on. This is my favorite part of Star Wars, are the slummy bars Mm -hmm. and shady characters, backdoor deals under the thumb of imperialism. This is the kind of stuff I like, because again, I have a propensity for westerns, and this, in tandem with the characters they talk to, feel the most in my wheelhouse as far as what I love. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a change of tone, and the way that we're about to introduce and take off on a completely different journey from the one we've been on is... Yeah, it's something to behold. We get another hint at Jedi powers in here, as it is here that, as Kenobi predicted, some punk pilot is trying to make things rough for Luke. He tells him that he'll be dead. And here's Kenobi to completely slice his arm off. I remember reading this in that storybook I had and just being captivated by how swiftly it described Kenobi's ability to draw and swing his sword. They were like, here's this old man who's able to swing this sword extremely quick. And it's shot that way. I love this scene. I like it. It's still a little bit trivia. The one time we get blood mm-hmm. throughout this is attached to this arm because this lightsaber is the one time it didn't cauterize the wound. <laughs> I like the violence here in it. Er, ducking behind the bar. No blasters. No blasters. Obi-Wan's not one to be fucked with either. That when push comes to shove, he's going to cut a fucker's arm off. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I champion about this movie is much like the Force, it's got the light and the dark without going too far in either direction. And it's still, to see a severed arm with two bottles of ketchup next to it, it's still pretty startling to see. But it also makes this movie feel less commercialized than they become later on. It still helps make it feel more of its own world, that it's not really abiding by standards and practices. So this is when we meet Han Solo and Chewbacca. Harrison Ford had been a carpenter before Lucas had cast him in a throwaway part in American Graffiti. But he was still a carpenter, and Lucas did not want to cast him in this, too, because he didn't want him to become, and I quote, his Bobby, meaning that Robert De Niro had been in many of his friend Martin Scorsese's works, and he didn't want that type of actor in his projects. Who wouldn't want that comparison, by the way? Yeah, right? (laughs) It's amazing with Harrison Ford, too, because he did not want to be this star in Hollywood. He was a carpenter. He did some things. He was also the drug runner for the carpenters. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> a great, there's a great story of on a cast going to a movie theater to see Star Wars and going, hey, that's my drug yeah. on screen. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. But Lucas had <sighs> Ford sit in on cast readings as Han. Even as Ford proclaimed to Lucas, you can write this shit, but good luck in getting anyone to say it. <laughs> and He's not wrong. <laughs> the more Lucas's casting director talked to him, the more Lucas realized he had no choice but to let loose of his original casting of Christopher Walken and put Ford in Han Solo's boots. 
Yes, he had Walken in this part before he decided on Ford. He's another one who grounds this movie. He calls the Force a hokey religion. He is fighting debt from a huge gangster that we'll learn about later on. Han is just, as many people in the franchise eventually put it, a scoundrel. And at this point, Harrison Ford's gruffness is kind of part of his charm. There's a reason Han was the most popular character at the time. And yes, this is the character whose gun I wanted and actually got for Christmas one year. It's because of how Ford plays him. He's just great as Han Solo. Yeah, he's my favorite person in this movie because he's the most shades of gray. And I like how open he is. It's like, I have no interest in your rebellion. All I care about is paying off my debts. This and Raiders, I think, are peak Harrison Ford as far as him being at the height of his abilities. Slash, he also cared back then. (laughs) But he's not deadpan, too, which is also the important thing. He still cracks jokes. He's smarmy. He's a self-admitted cynic. And I'm on his side. I think the Force is a bunch of mumbo-jumbo bullshit. I Um, knew you would be. (laughs) And he's also got have to have muscle with Chewbacca mm-hmm. to get him out of a fight. And also, unlike the other movies, this Han Solo has no problem with shooting someone in cold blood. Oh, boy. All right. Before we get there, that is my next note. We'll get there. But, Adam, how do you feel about Han Solo here? I think he steals every single scene that he's in. Maybe it's because he's a little bit older. Maybe it's because he feels confident in this movie. You know, Luke never feels confident and secure. Leia's the closest thing, and maybe that's why they're a good match. But he's that cool guy that you want to be or want to be with, and Harrison Ford is just perfect, absolutely perfect. Do I think some other people, do I think Kurt Russell could have been awesome? Yeah, I think that's probably as close as you could have got, but Harrison Ford is the epitome of cool in this film. Solo is happy that he's finding a way out of debt and expresses his gratitude to Chewie. We then get to what would eventually become one of the most infamous scenes of this movie. (laughs) The Greedo scene. Let's talk about what happens in the original cut here. So this alien Greedo, played by a woman, by the way, stops Han and basically sets up what we're going to see play out in the next two movies. Some gangster named Jabba the Hutt has it in for him, and Greedo is here to collect. Now, of course, the major influence behind Lucas on this film was old samurai movies, as we mentioned. But Matt has brought up a couple good points here about westerns. And here, Lucas is making a western. Han sees himself in a situation that he didn't bargain for, and when Greedo didn't let up, Han is throwing Greedo off by reaching up while also getting his hands on his blaster, and it becomes the man who had no name, with Han drawing his gun and shooting him. We will talk about what the scene became in later years here in a minute, but first, I want to hear from you guys. Do you like this as is originally conceived? Yes, because it's justified. Tatooine is like an outlaw town. Obi-Wan calls it a wretched hive of scum and villainy, and I wish they edited it to cut to the U.S. Capitol. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that'll be in the next special edition. But someone comes in to collect a bounty. That's justifiable defense. (laughs) Someone pulls a gun on you in the Old West. That is a calling card to say, all right, you're fair game. So I don't think it's him being bloodthirsty or him being not a good role model. This is how the old West, you know, those Westerns, specifically the revisionist Westerns, that's how they operated. And as originally intended is the way it should have been kept. Not only does this movie tell a lot of backstory by letting you know that Han got himself in trouble, he gets himself into debt for whatever reason, he's got a gangster on his tail, but that he's not lily white blue milk drinking luke skywalker this scene puts such a delineation line between the two and it's important to show that this hero's not the blonde hair blue eye farm boy shoot you might as well have superman and batman get ready to freaking jump in this spaceship here in a little bit he's got his own sense of morality but he's going to defend himself and he defends himself with a blaster mcclunky be damned all right let's talk about what it became so 
they have tweaked it and tweaked it. First, Greedo just flat out missed, making his aim worse than any stormtrooper. <laughs> the worst head tilt. Well, yeah. Yeah. Then they had Han well, move later. his head, Matrix style, before firing his own shot. <laughs> then they had him not move as much. It is insane how much the scene took a life of its own, to the point that Lucas himself wore Han shot first shirts on the set of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Yeah, the scene as it was originally shot is a direct reference to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. He's in the tub. Someone's talking about collecting a hit, and he shoots him, and he goes, when you got to shoot somebody, shoot, don't talk. And that's exactly what Han does. He shoots Greedo as he's talking in the first mm-hmm. um, shot, not before he fires. And somehow, for someone who doesn't believe in the Force... I think the force is how he moves his head. Because he a blaster shot from point-blank range. <laughs> Meanwhile, the fucking stormtroopers later on can't hit anything. It's not only that one. Han didn't shoot first. Han shot only. Yeah. Okay. Only there's, there's one shot, and it's fucking Han Solo. But that he's so cool afterwards. He saunters up. No issue. Flips where her a coin. Sorry about the mess. <laughs> He's John Wayne. That's absolutely what he is. I thought of that, and I also thought of Superman 2. At the very end of it, when Super, when it Clark Kent beats up that dude, yeah, and he just gives <laughs> the bar, he gives the guy who runs the diner like two thousand bucks. Like, sorry about the mess, sir. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tarkin is getting impatient as they cannot get any info from the princess, so he decides to set the Death Star's course for Alderaan. We cut to the droids hiding from troops as yet another infamous scene happens. God. That's of Jabba confronting Han about his money, as well as Greedo's death. In the special editions. Yeah. This scene was originally shot with some Irishman wearing a massive fur cloak. Looking like Robert Baratheon. Yeah, he looks like later day Orson Welles. He really does. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> That's a great call. But when they did the special editions in 1997, they CGI'd a younger Jabba. And honestly, yeah, I had problems with Han shot first, but this is when I really start having problems. One, they inserted a Boba Fett here to have a close-up, which is weird. We'll get into my thoughts on him next week. But two, one of the things that made my first viewing of Star Wars so great was we've been hearing Han talk about this fantastic ship of his every time he's on screen. Yet in that version, we see this ship at the exact same time everyone else does. And my thoughts are exactly like Luke's, where he's like, what a piece of junk. That reveal is ruined by this scene. So look, I would have cut the scene entirely, regardless of, of how it looks. But this, this Java composite looks awful. And it's so clear that it feels like Han Solo is talking to himself. Mm -hmm. Even when it interacts, when he steps on the tail, it still looks so artificial. And in a movie with so many great practical effects that still hold up, it's a a black stain. And, like, we also skipped over, you know, the stuff in Moss Eisley where that creature falls over and kicks the guy off. That stuff doesn't bother me because it's blinking, you miss it. And it's not really consequential in the story. That's where I get upset about the changes are the ones that create either continuity errors or just objectively ruined scenes. Here, this also kind of disrupts the flow of the movie. This is just giving setup for what we're going to get down the road because it was established after. So I think Lucas was smart to cut it on his first read-through. And yeah, as you said, adding Boba Fett is the, that is the biggest, hey, fans, here's a bone for you. Mm-hmm. A dinosaur bone, if you will, like he wrote in the holiday special. <laughs> but yeah, everything about this is it's just bad. And it makes Jabba seem way too merciful, given how he acts in Jedi. Yeah, it's two different characters. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I have 
liked it less, less, less every time ever since. It's not only that he inserted it here unnecessarily, it's that it doesn't fit with the world in this movie. It doesn't look like everything else that's going on. It's not the same type of feel. Inserting a complete digital character into this physical world just sticks out just like that tail. It's unfortunate. The less said about Boba Fett, the better, because... He's Boba Fett, and who cares? <laughs> and more for later. But it's just grinds it to a halt just as we're getting ready to see the ship, mm. and it's unfortunate. So Luke sells a speeder, and they are followed by a spy until they are spotted right by the Falcon. Funny bit of trivia here. Lucas was still in his fast car mode and inserted these dice in the cockpit as a tribute, <laughs> but they didn't <laughs> last very long. Now I'm going to say, you know what you could buy at Disneyland? Oh, I'm sure every fucking piece of this movie is available to get at Disneyland. <laughs> you can buy those in Galaxy's Edge. I'm sure. Don't ask me how I know. Well, another thing we need to talk about, too, is before this, every single space movie was pristine. You go in these spaceships and everything just looks so clean. I know it's been said a lot, but I need to say it. This universe, it was a wise idea to make this look used. It was a wise idea to take paint and just put it on these things, make it look like they've been beat up. It was a wise idea to put dents in C-3PO and the Stormtrooper costumes. All of this just makes this fantasy feel real. Without a doubt, there's something about this world feeling, and it, it gets said over and over, it gets said in every documentary and interview, I don't care. The fact that this world feels lived in does matter because... When we see, I'll preview it, when we see worlds later that are so shiny and new, it feels artificial. And with this feeling like you can touch it, run your fingers on it, and actually have texture, it feels like it's a real world. Yeah, and I like how if you're not part of the Empire, your materials are weathered and beaten down. The Falcon looks like it's been through some shit. Not the shit we'll talk about in Solo, but it just looks old and, and rustic. Not everything works pristinely. I like that the Empire has such a control over resources that you basically have to be a scavenger to survive. So there's a gun battle and Han shoots back and a nice little back and forth with stormtroopers until the Falcon takes off and everyone is finally up in the air. I used to drive my parents mad when this scene came on because I would run around the house with my Han Solo blaster and just reenact, <laughs> Chewie, get us out of here! My grandma would come visit and ask my mom, is he okay? <laughs> They're spotted by Imperial ships. And this is another great scene because we see light speed in action for the very first time. The way the stars expand before they take off. No matter how many times I see this, every single time I see it, I just love this light speed. Yeah, there's something magical about going to light speed for the first time. It still works. It still hits. And every sci-fi, everything since has been trying to capture this moment to their detriment. Hmm. Agreed. There's a reason why this was the backdrop of every Windows 95. Yeah. <laughs> Not just because the special editions are coming around, coming out around that time. I've been seeing this scene a lot in this winter because every time I drive, there's fucking snow falling everywhere. So <laughs> I think of this scene a lot. We didn't see Leia brought before Tarkin, who decides since she won't talk about where the rebel base is, even if she gives the fake answer of Dan Tween, which as a kid I always caught as Tatooine. He'll destroy her home planet of Alderaan. Massive scene that really does a nice job of demonstrating how big and bad this space station really is. And Adam, you pointed out earlier how fucking evil Tarkin is here. I mean, especially when she gives an answer. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether he believes her or not. And he doesn't because he sends troops to Dantooine. And that's when he finds out that it's been evacuated. Yeah. So he thinks she told the truth. And one, okay, Dantooine, Tantooine is just as bad as Ben and Obi-Wan. Come on. <laughs> but his whole, like, oh, thank you. Okay, go ahead. Proceed when ready. Yeah. Like, it's just, 
his cool, calm nature that he is going to blow up this planet. Damn. My favorite bit of trivia, well, one of my favorite bits of trivia from this movie is those fucking boots that Cushing had to wear were so fucking uncomfortable. He hated wearing them. So every scene where you don't see the boots, he's actually wearing slippers. (laughs) Which is is great. And the sound. Yes. The sound when the gunner lowers that to Oh, my God. Put that on the surround system. It is glorious. That's another unheralded name, but what Ben Bird did for the sound in this thing is unreal. I completely agree with that. Just don't listen to his commentaries because he's boring as fuck. I would expect nothing less from a sound. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I also like that I think this movie now has the record for the biggest body count we have ever had in a movie because (laughs) billions of people die in the span of three seconds. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if this will ever be duplicated until another Star Wars movie where they do this again. Gee, stop me if you've heard that before. Or Man of um, Steel. Also, Go ahead. Yeah. Also shows that the Empire, it really makes you feel like the rebellion is so small and insignificant in comparison if they can wipe out a planet with a signal. Mm-hmm. So it also establishes why these plans which are important enough somehow to get an entire spin-off movie, but not important enough to be explained in the original movie. Geez, Tommy, if you've heard that before, that it makes it feel so important that they get these plans to the powers that be. We see Luke training with a training probe, and that Kenobi has felt a huge disturbance in the Force, as if many lives were just lost. Now, I never picked up on this, but quite a few books I've read have said that Han is actually controlling this probe that is training Luke here. Honestly, I think that might have been in the script, but again, I've never picked up on that. Never picked up on that. I haven't read that. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't like that choice if they thought they were going that way. Yeah, I don't th- I don't think that's true. One part of the scene that always made my dad laugh was the chess scene as R2 and Chewbacca, they're battling it out. <laughs> 3PO tries convincing R2 to let the Wookiee win because droids don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. And 3PO, having just experienced this earlier in the movie, <laughs> didn't want to experience it again. So he's like, let the Wookiee win. That's so great. <laughs> Love this chess scene. It's like, guess what? The loser has to watch the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite moments in real life for the last couple of years was going to Galaxy's Edge with the family and writing smuggler's run which is in the millennium falcon and as you're walking through the falcon right before you go in there's a moment where you can there's like a holding room you're, you're all in there and you can sit around a sabacc table or this chessboard. it's just like it it's a complete replica it's got the bench around it and man it makes you feel like you're five years old all over again and i have to say for the record the only reason i know as much about star wars as i do is being married to christian he is a big star wars fan <laughs> Much more than I have ever been. And that's how I learned all the superfluous stuff in combination of Dantooine used to be, in addition to Coruscant, one of the, uh, where the Jedi Council met. Between that and the teams that he roots for, I'm really starting to believe you, where he said I'd probably get along more with him than I do with you. <laughs> probably would, because you got to remember, I grew up during the prequel era, and also when Star Wars video games oh, were yeah. just being, like, Knights of the Old Republic, where that's like thousands of years before the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. That kind of Star Wars I dug because I got to actually use a lightsaber. Watching other people use lightsabers is not as cool for me, apparently. (laughs) Especially, I'm sorry, blue lightsabers suck. (laughs) (laughs) I've never never seen that hill be climbed up. (laughs) I know it's entirely superfluous, but... Blue lightsabers aesthetically are my least favorite visually. <laughs> and I like how George Lucas was like, 
Lightsabers are blue, a lightsaber's are red. That's it. Until <laughs> so I pulled a fast one in Return of the Jedi. Because <laughs> you would think, even with all the films that we've gotten, you would see an entire rainbow of colors. And they sprinkle them in. Whereas in Knights of the Old Republic, you could pick everything from silver, which is just like a, it's almost like transparent. It's kind of how the lightsaber looks in this. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say. It's blue, yeah. but, it's, but it's like a faint blue. Mm-hmm. I also like that Lucas never, of all the changes, he never really went back to modify this lightsaber. No. Because the prequel ones look considerably more vibrant. The blue accentuates a lot more, but he never went back to really up this or Vader's for that matter. Because you could see like an edit of this where... Oh, there, yeah. Where the yeah, light where, turns off. Yeah, where, where the <laughs> lights go out, it's bright yeah. blue and bright red. Mm-hmm. Tarkin and Vader, they get word after a search of Dantooine, they determine that there is no rebel base on site. So Tarkin immediately just gives the order to terminate her. Meanwhile, the Falcon shows up to where Alderaan is supposed to be, and it's not there because it's been blown to smithereens. As they trudge through the rock that used to be the planet, they are passed by a TIE fighter. Now, Joe Johnston, who was an effects artist on this and went on to directing, we'll talk about him when we get to Captain America, the first Captain America Marvel film. He has always said that TIE stood for Twin Iron Engine, but Lucas, (laughs) if you ask him, he came up with the term simply because their design looked like that of a bow tie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who do you believe here? Both are true because, look at the TIE fighter, I assume the left wing and the right wing each hold a power cell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I buy both of those. And who knows, we might talk about Joe Johnston before that if we do Jurassic Park. Oh, that's right. Either way, you better believe I had this ship. I loved TIE fighters. I love the sound they make. Awesome sound. It's actually the sound of my text message when I get a text message. My question, though, is, God, those fighter pilots have to be crammed into it because it looks so small. I know. And, like, they just suck Vader in one that's even small. I know. <laughs> and you're like, how does this bodybuilder who's decked out in all this armor squeeze into this tiny little cockpit? Yeah, he's taller than me, and he's in this fucking ship. Anyway, Han gets in pursuit of it because he knows if their presence is known that there will be an, another massive hunt for them. But his efforts to take it out are for naught as they are caught in the tractor beam of a space station that apparently no one had any idea existed. <laughs> Kenobi expresses more concern as they are brought in, but the Empire bringing the ship in is what saves Leia's life, as Vader concludes that they're here to return the plans to the princess. So this is why she's not dead by the time Luke gets to her. A search of the ship comes up with nothing. That is because of the floor compartments, and I had a huge Falcon replica as a kid, and I always loved making the heroes hide in these things. Oh, I love the floor compartments. And I love the line that Han says where he's just like, I never imagined I'd be smoking myself in them. (laughs) <laughs> Which lets you know he's a smuggler. He's literally, got, you know, yeah. midnight run. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he's not the virtuous one. Yep. Love it. I also love the exclamation point that Han puts on as he scratches Chewie's head. <laughs> Just <laughs> nice little set of scenes here. Love that. Yep. Han and Luke, they come up with a plan to kill two stormtroopers and take their uniforms and lead Chewbacca through the station like he's a prisoner to where Leia is so they can this, free her. This is when I think it's important to realize that, yes, people are just like, oh, you know, what, Star Wars being kidified, blah, blah, blah. There's a difference. Sometimes it gets too kidified. But this is a silly kids family fantasy movie. It's just not told stupidly. But it, you still get the, hey, hey, you, come in here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And guys go bonk on the head, basically, and take their outfits. You know, how stupid silly is that? But it works the way that it's being told. Yep. Uh, but it's so it's so absolutely cartoonish. Mm-hmm. 
And you don't hear blaster shots, so for all you know, they could have just knocked them out and took their uniform. Oh, you do hear blaster shots. You hear them. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, th- well those could have been from the stormtroopers trying that's to shoot them. That's true, too. But now that they're on the Death Star, they forget how to hit people. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how the stormtroopers go from deadly accurate and threatening to dead-eyed in the span of one movie. <laughs> yep. Like, yep. like I thought it was Return of the Jedi's when they started to go down. No, it's in this movie where they forget <laughs> they forget how to hit people. It's right it's at the halfway point. They start shooting them when they're running towards the Falcon. From then on, they suddenly yeah. can't shoot. <laughs> yeah. So this disguise gets them past the guards, and one thing I'm really liking here is the rapport. Luke is not digging how loud Chewbacca is being, and Han is yelling about having to sneak around. It's Kenobi who calms them down, and then he says that he needs to do what he needs to do alone, which is confront Vader. Luke tries talking him out of it, but Guinness plays it so well. It's also like he refused to say, may the force be with you, because he never says that exact phrase in this movie. He just puts his hand on his shoulder and says, the force will be with you always. I love this scene. I just love the rapport, like I said, these guys have. There's some documentaries and things that say Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill, they were friendly, but I don't think they were really friends on this set. I think they were actually at each other's throats half the time. Yeah, I see them getting along, but looking at this movie so differently that I don't think they were buddies. Well, they had completely different worldviews, as we'll find out in a scene that they shoot later on. You know, because they do conventions and stuff all the time now, like the press materials for the new movies. Mm. They were together a lot. More than they were in the actual new film. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have a fucking scene together. Oh, God. We'll get there. Nope. Yeah. There's that story. I think it's my favorite Mark Hamill story where he talks, one of my favorites, where he talked about shooting the garbage scene. And he went up to George Lucas and he's like, wait, for continuity, shouldn't my hair still be all wet and gross? Harrison looks at him and goes, hey, kid, it ain't that kind of movie. (laughs) (laughs) Then he goes... People are looking at your hair. We're all in big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send you the clip. He was on Seth Meyers. Oh, okay. And I don't even think it it wasn't for Star Wars. He was promoting child play. Oh, shit. Of course, they asked him about Star Wars. They head through the corridors as Luke complains. He can't see a thing in his helmet. And Chewbacca scares away a little droid that comes their way. I love this little scene. It needs to be said, too. Yeah, I I, I gotta say, we've talked a lot about the other actors in this, as we should. Chewbacca's been here. He's been in the background. But he's played by Peter Mayhew, and he brings so much to this character. Just his expressions and, of course, the sound effects, as Adam mentioned by Ben Burt. Always great, these bear sounds. But, God, Peter Mayhew does a lot in this suit. Yeah, he really does. He brings that physical... He's the muscle. You know, he's the odd job. He's the heavy. But... You love him because he's a big dog, which is what he is. You know, he's a Malamute. He's your buddy. He's your best friend. He's your doggo. And, yeah, he's he's fantastic. Love Chewie. Yeah, he's the, he's the underappreciated character in this entire trilogy. He does everything, no questions asked. Uh, if you know anything about Wookiees, life debts mean a lot to them. He's with Han because he purposely chose to. And I like that he's always by his side and, like, no questions asked. But he's also, Chewie gets easily annoyed because he's part, he's an alien. Yeah. So he, he's always, you know, like, wait, why does it have to be me that gets captured? He hates handcuffs. Yeah. All these little things that make sense. He's also very temperamental, but he's also smart enough to know how to co-pilot a ship, which is interesting. He's designed after the same dog that is named after Indiana Jones. <laughs> it's George Lucas's dog. And you would look at him and say, man, he's, he's a big-ass dog. I think I can make a character out of this. So he had the sketch artist just kind of do a little drawing of it, and that's how Chewbacca came to be. 
So they go to the detention block that the princess is in, but the guards here are having none of it. They start to search them, but they wisely free Chewie, and a fight breaks out. They shoot the cameras and then mics that are planted everywhere, and they end up tracking the princess down. Han tries to talk his way through what happened over the intercom, and a scene that never fails to make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> boring conversation anyway <laughs> but we also see luke open the door to the princess's cell and she just exclaims aren't you a little short for stormtrooper <laughs> you know i mentioned american graffiti for a reason i think the rapport that's going on here this is still lucas in that mold you know we're gonna see him he gets a little self-serious later on in this series but here i think all these characters all these actors they're still having fun because i think the way lucas has written this yeah it's stilted don't get me wrong this is not a great acting display but i think the rapport and everyone having fun is definitely on display here yeah absolutely i also like that they're not all buddy buddies luke doesn't get along with han necessarily even Leia gives Luke crap as Angelo Sharp for Stormtrooper. Han and Leia don't see eye to eye. Everything is confrontational, but they're doing this because they're stuck together. They're like that ultimate band of misfits, mm-hmm. which works because a lot of the influences, like Flash Gordon, there was some inner conflict amongst that crew. So I like that it's not harmonious in a galaxy far, far away. People are afraid to disagree and not get along. Absolutely. The rapport is fantastic because they're not all friends. And I was going to say, this shot right here opening the cell, this is Carrie Fisher deciding to seduce an entire generation, Mm -hmm. myself included, a generation later. Because holy crap. Mm -hmm. Including her own brother. Oh, wait, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I love how Luke, he's having no idea what... (laughs) What, a storm, what the name Stormtrooper means. Leia's already like, okay, who the fuck is this guy? But it's the name Ben Kenobi that wins her over. And she runs to join them. Meanwhile, Vader... But the, the, doesn't she, not, she only knows him as Obi-Wan, though, doesn't she? Well, she does say Obi-Wan. But how many people have the last name fucking Kenobi? Let, let's be honest. How many people in this universe have the last name Skywalker, as we find <laughs> That's out? That's true. well you can just take that name for your own meanwhile vader gets a sense that his old master is nearby and he leaves to go search for him we get another shootout that has some wonderful moments han calling Chewie a big hairy oaf as he pushes him into the garbage chute and han exclaiming that he's either going to kill the princess or he's beginning to like her (laughs) again great stuff that shows a good intuition by lucas to make them have more of an unstilted dialogue that this film has kind of needed for a while now and fisher provides that here Now, this scene in the trash compactor, another arduous scene to shoot. Hamill had a blood vessel on the right side of his face blow up, given how long he had to hold his breath, which the cast of Avatar 2, I'm sure, laugh at now. But (laughs) I like it. I I like how they are facing more enemies other than the Empire. I like that Lucas is really stacking the deck by putting his cast in danger like this. Is it convenient that they happen to be crushing their garbage at this exact time? Yes, But the sound in here, as they are getting closer and closer to being crushed, is great. But it also establishes that R2 is pretty useful. What do you guys feel about this scene here? Also a great tribute to what we'll see with Indiana Jones paying homage to serialized storytelling with this death trap. Yeah, great point. That's what I like. I like that there's another monster. Again, what is 3PO's usefulness? He's not even answering the intercom. Well, he's, he's kind of, he, oh my god, it's my wife. Pick up your phone! <laughs> well, he's being stalked by stormtroopers who hit their head on doors as they walk in. <laughs> <laughs> Love 
that. <laughs> I do too. Something else they never fix, and I'm glad. But I love that they did But you think that would be the kind of thing, like a, a continuity error of all things, would make Lucas, that would cause a heart attack, you would think. But he left it in, which I think is great. I just really do like this garbage scene. I like the music that Williams is playing here, that creature that takes Luke under, and just how the princess is like, okay, I got rescued into this. <laughs> like, I'm in fucking garbage now. <laughs> and I love how 3PO is cursing his own mental body as they celebrate because he thinks that they're in pain. But no, they're all right. And once 3PO opens the doors to the trash compactor, they are home free. We see Obi-Wan. He turns off the tractor beam as the rest avoid female advice and make their way out. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> that is the playset that I had, by the way. It was such a random playset, but it was that tower that he's on, that little walkway. Oh, really? Oh, awesome. And it came with an Obi-Wan. So I had the Obi-Wan, rogue Obi-Wan figure, that tower that he turned the tractor beam off with. <laughs> I did not have the Millennium Falcon that held the figures. I did not have the Death Star. No, I had the tractor beam tower place. That has about two minutes of screen time. <laughs> <sighs> I do love how Chewie's scared over a sound that he thinks is another one of the sewer creatures, and he refuses to get close. He's just shaking his head. <laughs> Again, Peter Mayhew is doing some pretty good stuff here. We then hear the princess yell for them to get this big walking carpet out of her way. And Lord knows if I've heard this once, I've heard it a million times. <laughs> That's what I love. That she's just been quote-unquote rescued. Her demeanor doesn't no, change. No, not at all. She's not grateful. She's still the badass. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, she's in charge. After the princess says that she admires their bravery for showing up in the Millennium Falcon, troops once again track them down and they go their separate ways. And I love that there are... For the record, that's my favorite delivery of this movie. You came in that Yeah. <laughs> and I love that there are 10 troops here, but Han is the one doing the chasing. That is the funniest thing in this movie yes. to me. <laughs> Another... But he also runs into a room of 100. Yeah, which was changed. That was actually added to the special edition which is another weird thing actually in this room there were maybe six in the original version yep. but they changed it to a huge heap of them and god i do not like that han runs from and then shoots at a gang of troops as luke and leia they make like errol flynn and swing away from danger a stunt that hamill and fisher they did themselves much to fisher's chagrin she hated doing this but it's a great scene. I do like this because it's showing Luke actually growing into the hero that we'll, we'll eventually see him become. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And this is where Game of Thrones got incest from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, forget Skywalker. Their last name should be Lannister. <laughs> we then see Han and Chewie. They escape another garrison of troops by exiting a blast door before it closes. So this whole time, Obi-Wan has been sneaking around the station not only to turn off the tractor beam, but also find Vader. And here, he finally gets him. You know, I hesitate to call this a fight, because it's truly nothing compared to what we're going to get later. But here is the wise old master up against what, if you listen to him talk to Luke earlier, killed Luke's father. And his greatest fear is right here in front of him. I like the fight enough, but they truly didn't know what they had and wouldn't really put it to spectacular use until the next film. But it gets the job done. It's fine. When you realize the age of the people doing it and everything else, it's fencing is really what it is, which isn't swashbuckling sword play on a pirate ship. So it's it's fine. Compared to every other lightsaber battle, it sure as heck is not going to stand up. But in this initial movie, it's there. It's okay. As Matt mentioned before, the effects on the lightsabers, I like that it's still the same. I love that spot where Vader backs up and all you see is the glowing tip. 
his saber. It just reminds me of the work that went into doing this movie way back then. Yeah, it doesn't win style points. Also informs this is also his former pupil, as he mentions earlier, from a certain point of view, as he says <laughs> later on. But it's also, this is sort of samurai combat, you know, wide stances. They're both having both hands on their lightsaber at all times. There's no one-arm beatdowns or anything like that. They treat the Jedi as samurai, where it's like, you know, combat is meant for defensive, not necessarily offensive-mindedness. So if you're looking at this as far as, like, one of the greatest action movies of all time, you're going to be highly disappointed. But again, it's about context and characterization, because there's dialogue in between. Uh, there's other stuff happening. It's a distraction on Obi-Wan's part in a lot of ways mm-hmm. to buy them time. Absolutely. So it's, ser- it's serving other motives than just filling action. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as whose decision it was to kill Kenobi, that is an interesting question to ponder and one whose answer is still up in the air. The three possibilities that I researched and are most likely are A, it was in the script all along, B, it was Guinness's idea as he did not want to be associated with anything else of this movie and just wanted to take his paycheck and leave, perhaps giving the other members of the cast something to play off of. Or C, Lucas was fiddling with this script the entire shoot, as most directors do, very, very rarely is something on screen the result of a director coming in and shooting an entire finished script without changing things. But as one story goes, one day he decided he really wanted to raise the stakes and have this trip to the Death Star mean something. So he revealed to Guinness the day of that he was going to kill him off. Guinness was not pleased, but finally relented when Lucas offered him 2.5% of the film's percentage points as a thank you. (laughs) As it is, I think it's a pretty good scene. I think it's a great emotional scene. And Luke seeing his at the time father figure killed in retrospect is what makes him thrive to be the Jedi he eventually becomes. And for the purpose of this movie, it makes him into the hero he becomes. Plus, I just think the scene's powerful. Luke screaming no, Williams upping the horns, Vader stomping an empty set of robes. All of it really has a mystical quality to it. Plus, those two percentage points made this the most that Guinness had ever made off of all his other movies combined. (laughs) What do you guys think of Kenobi being killed here? I think it sets up the mystical, magical part of the Force really well especially because we hear him not all that long afterwards, but just seeing him disappear, the robes. I get the sense from Vader that he knows he's not dead in the traditional sense. So it happening this way kind of lets us know that we're still in this fantasy where the unexpected can happen. But I like the end, and knowing that Obi sacrifices himself for the greater good of everybody else, it's that hero's journey. Well, this is Joseph Campbell. The death of a father figure is instrumental in any hero's origin story. I guess they read it twice because Uncle Owen wasn't enough, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine for what it is. It serves the material. I just, anytime I hear someone yell no in a Star Wars movie, I can't help but laugh. (laughs) I knew you were going to bring that up. They find out real quick that Ben did, in fact, get the tractor beam out of commission as they are able to take off. But there's no time to mourn Ben Kenobi's death as ships are on their way. And this is another scene that I would reenact to no end. There are side-by-side shots of World War II footage in this scene, and they are virtually identical. I never really put together just how much Lucas took from that war as inspiration for this, but there it is. And it's another just great, great scene. Yeah, love the dogfighting part of this. It's something you could tell Lucas has some passion for, something he, he does in Red Tails, you know, decades later. But to really just show the exact same shots, but with these ships, you know, that ILM created... I think it's what gives it the realistic effect is that it was the same type of dogfighting that Jets were doing. Yeah, I mean, this is the genesis of Red Tails in a lot of ways. 
But it's also Lucas using a lot of influence. There's Vietnam components. There's World War II. So he knows how to make things adaptable for a futuristic setting, even though it technically takes place in the past, based on the words a long time ago. We learn that the Empire has put a homing beacon on the Falcon, so they'll track them to wherever it is that they're going. Han and Leia, they have a bit of a verbal sparring match, as Han reveals the only reason he's still around is for the money. To the question of what he thinks of her, Han responds to Luke, trying not to, kid. (laughs) In there. (laughs) You and me both, my friend. We go to the Rebel briefing as we are hearing what the plan of attack is, thanks to the information within R2. Given what they're going to be asked to do, I agree with one of the pilots here where he says, Sounds impossible. We cut to Han, who apparently has been given boxes and boxes of money by Princess Leia as a reward, and he tells Luke that he's gone. This scene, while it may not be much, truly makes the end of this movie that much more of a triumph for me. I do like this little goodbye scene here. Yeah, I really do too. But everything in here, the buildup of what's going on, that we actually get to see this rebellion and where they are and what they are and seeing just how scrawny this little ragtag group is compared to everything we've seen so far, I think is really paramount to how this film finishes. Yeah, especially because they're, they're, you don't see Han do anything very heroic during the movie to make you think that he would possibly come back. So the movie does not play its hand whatsoever, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Or its hand. <laughs> we see Luke tell Biggs hi, which again, given that we didn't see them bond at the beginning, doesn't really mean much here. And we learned that old R2-D2 is not only the supplier of plans, he's also Luke's co-pilot. 3PO says goodbye, and the crew is sent up. And I love this slow build-up. Lucas is really building that they're going up for battle, and all that goes into it. And again, as a car enthusiast, I'm sure he loves showing things like the ships getting fueled up before they leave, and the way they take off. This is just a really nice build-up to this battle. Yeah, well, there's also the component of they are on the clock because if they don't do it in time, the entire base gets blown yep. up. Ticking clock. Yep. So what follows is a large-scale assault by these ships, and I guess what makes it effective is the Empire wasn't expecting these ships to be a threat. They're having a hard time fitting through the small opening in the shield wall, but the Empire still sees them as a threat, so some ships are sent their way. More World War II footage reenactments happen here as... Porkins, hey, Porkins, we just spoke about him a couple months ago with Superman. (laughs) He gets taken out, and we're seeing Y-Wings enter the mix. And this, again, was something I just loved reenacting. All these ships' assaults, and I had an X-Wing fighter, and I would do this shit all the time. I love this shit. How do you guys feel about the final battle here? Now, I have heard some people say you could have ended it on the Death Star and be good with it. Like, once they escape, you could have ended the film. I think you needed this scene. I, I don't think it drags this movie down at all. This is the best part of the movie because if you look at the structure of it, every action scene in this movie is an act of the movie. First act is the fight on the ship at the beginning. Second act is the Death Star escape. Third act is this. And it is amazing that you watch this. Not only do the effects hold up, but the way it's edited to give you a sense of geography as far as where everyone is, how close they are to the whole phrasing, all those kinds of things. And again, the Empire feels like a threat because these fighter pilots, these know how to hit people, like the people on the ground, which is pretty cool. And it gives Luke his moment, which he still has not had yet. So to complete the Joseph Campbell thing and to make this a story, he needed to do this for the film to have a sense of completion. I disagree with anyone who says this is not important. And this is still probably my favorite top three action set piece in any Star Wars movie. Interesting. 
The only thing is I do think it does have the issue with a double ending. I'll acknowledge that. However, as soon as we get to Yavin, I love the rest of this film. Absolutely do. One, the X-Wing design. How amazing yeah. is the design of these ships? Mm-hmm. Not just that they're X in the shape, but that the S-foils split to go into attack position and just seeing the TIE fighters can be formidable. Man, this thing is fantastic. And I will just become engrossed watching the documentary of watching them film the Death Star run and everything they did for it. It is amazing to see how they put this final act together. And these guys worked their asses off on this. Yep. At one point, Alan Ladd, who was running 20th Century Fox at the time, he went up to Lucas and said, so how many effects shots do you have? You've built this effects house. You've done everything you can. And we've given you all the tools you need to do this. How many effects shots do you have? He goes, one. <laughs> and this thing was three months away from being released. And he was up against the fucking wall. And now you have thousands of effect shots in a film. You have close to 2,000 per Marvel film, basically. So... When it came to this, he promised Lad, he's like, look, I will get it done. And he put these guys in this room and they set up out in the parking lot. They set up right around the studio. I mean, there was so much, so many things that they did that really, really just upped this ante so much. And yes, you can definitely see there are a lot of touches on this. They did a lot of CGI shots. Lucas added a lot to the special edition of this where certain ships and certain angles are being done. There's a barrel roll as opposed to just a straight fly through. Little things like that he did at the end of this. But that does not hamper the fact that they really, really worked to get these effects done. And again, effects like this weren't really around at the time. You didn't see fast ships like this. So, so innovative. So we're getting some nice dogfights, a nice buildup of drama. We're seeing one pilot think that he's hit the target, but we find out that he didn't. And then Biggs himself is taken out. This, to me, is a great setup to show that Luke is now in the perfect position to realize his dream, to do what his uncle never dreamed he could do. But once again, we're seeing more drama as Vader's had enough, so he mans his own ship and hunts down planes himself. There was something awesome about watching Vader come out, and that they decided to give Vader a ship just different enough from all the other times. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's not even the TIE Interceptor, which we see later, but it's just a different style of TIE ship. Is God damn, I love that Vader ship. I do too. Had it as a kid. The reason this scene is also needed for the creators of all the Star Wars porn parodies because all the lines don't require <laughs> reference. Negative, negative. It didn't go in. Look at the size of that thing. I have you, you can't do any good back there. Let's blow this thing and go home. Like, this is, there's no rewrites that need to be done. I love how at one point someone tells Tarkin that the ships are now being shown as a threat and that escape pod is ready if he wants to go. But Tarkin's like, I'm not leaving in our moment of triumph. Yeah, that's the greatest line. Evacuate in our moment of triumph. Yeah, yeah. Again, porn pair. <laughs> oh, We're seeing that even now Vader senses something different about Luke. This doesn't prevent him from shooting R2, which made me really sad as a kid. I hated seeing R2 get shot. Mm-hmm. But Vader gets him in target once again, only for the ship next to him to get taken out by, what's this? A returning Han Solo, causing him to causing him to spin out of control and unable to prevent Luke from firing the world's most perfect shot. It goes right into the target, and the ships fly away and from one huge, massive explosion, meaning the death of the Death Star and Grand Moff Tarkin. But not Vader, as he spins and lives to fight another day. Boys, how do we feel about the moment of triumph here for Luke and Han Solo? Uh, this is one of the great, I don't want to call it a switcheroo, but re-entries, again, speaking of phrasing, of Han coming back, because it is unexpected to a certain degree, and it 
helps that Luke, he does it himself, Han gets rid of Vader, but he leaves it up to him to fire the shot. And everyone's like, wait, Luke, you switch off your computer. Like, what are you doing? So, again, this movie's saying the power of Jesus can do anything, which, you know, again, part of my problem. How did he do that? Oh, the Force. You know what I love about this is James Earl Jones' what? <laughs> when, when, yes. when that ship gets hit. Nice point. What? <laughs> like, it is just the best delivery of a line that he does. It's the music, the the thumping, the, the staccato way that it's done just you know, is building and building and building. At the same time, like, they're getting ready to fire, and that same Death Star gunner pulls the lever again, and that there's a two seconds of silence, and then the fucking Death Star explodes. It, it's mag- just magically done. And I love how even though he's being told, look, this thing's not going to be successful. There's never going to be another one of these, whatever. He has the bad guy get away. Mm-hmm. And so there was enough sense to at least let him do that which I thought was a great move, because if you kill Vader here, what's your future? Well, it also, for all you know, he could be lost in space. <laughs> no pun intended. But it, <laughs> it does it does make you think that there's going to be another movie. Like, it's complete. Vader's defeated. The Death Star is blown up. For all you know, he could just hit something like an asteroid and blow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After medics attend to R2 and assure 3PO that he won't need to donate anything to help repair him, we get a medal ceremony where everyone, including Han and Luke, but not R2 and not Chewbacca, get medals for their bravery. Poor Chewie. Something about this scene Love. I'll never forget is we watched Triumph of the Will for one of my college editing classes. And the professor yeah. was like, pay attention to the end. It'll remind you of a scene from a massive movie. I watched and put it together. And it was so interesting seeing the influence that Lucas had for even ending this, uh, this film with this scene. Just amazing. I love the ending of this. This music, mm. the, the throne room yeah. song. I used to play this in my car. I remember. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's fantastic, and it, it leaves it on such a joyous, uplifting note. Princess Leia looks absolutely amazing. Everybody's cleaned up after it, and realizing that the rebellion, it feels like it's growing a little bit because there's a decent crowd inside there. It feels like something happened by destroying the Death Star. It's great. It's, it brings everything full circle. Is the Death Star the might of the Empire? Is that all it is? Yes or no, depending on how you read it. Doesn't matter. They won. End of story. Beginning, middle, end. There's no obvious sequel bait because this was intended just to be one thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, and that's my favorite part of it. So a standing ovation is had, and we get one more shot of our heroes as we cut to black and credits roll on Star Wars. Probably our longest review ever. Let's see how we feel about it. Scale of 1 to 10, how do we feel about Star Wars? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. Star Wars. Episode first discussion. This was a long time coming for us to discuss this movie because I can't wait to see who we piss off by throwing such praise at this thing. But this is a movie that's deserving of the praise that is bestowed upon it for the way that it was shot, for the way that it's acted, for the way that it's scored, for the effects houses that grew out of it. I mean, there's no Pixar without Star Wars. Make that correlation, because that company doesn't exist unless it's making commercials because it's an offshoot of ILM. What this did for the industry was ridiculous. What it did for summer blockbusters was at least as important as what Spielberg did just a little bit before with Jaws. The mythology behind it is immense, and regardless of what comes before or after, Star Wars stands as a height of cinema if you're looking for that grand epic on a fantasy scale. And 
for a space opera, as Lucas puts it. This thing hits really on every note. Does it go through the Campbellian archetype? Well, yeah, because that's what movies do. Is it things that we've seen before? Is it things that we've seen since? Yeah, yeah, it is. But it's put together in an amazing way. He took the ingredients for this movie and made a fucking just four-star dinner out of it. The acting, with the exception of Mark Hamill, is pretty damn amazing. And for a large group of unknowns, for the most part, for it to be this well acted is is saying something. The effects work is top notch. The sound work is absolutely fantastic. And the mythology that is here, and especially by glazing over that it has a past and just setting it in the now, I think helps this movie to feel complete. This is a full movie. It's a full story in and of itself. It doesn't need a sequel and it stands alone. And that's special because we don't see that anymore. Is it a perfect movie? No. There's moments that can be cut down a little bit. There's a little bit of scenes that just slightly drag. So while it's not perfect, it is the movie that everybody, I think, needs to see, period. Regardless of age, regardless of sex, of gender, of place in the world, because I do think it's that important to cinema then, now, and in the future. Star Wars, it's not a perfect movie, but it's the most important one. And it's a nine, without a doubt, nine on ten. Nine on ten from Mr. Bunch. Matt, you of the let's do the schedule, let's put Star Wars on it. How do you feel about this first entry? Adam said it's imperfect, which is true, but that's also why I like this movie as much as I do. I will compare Star Wars, this movie, to the first Terminator film, because I think they're very similar. Made in ways pioneering films for what they were, a lot of obstacles that the directors had to overcome, but also, much like the Terminator, surrounding it with people at the top of their game. I like that this movie feels dirty and grimy. It's nowhere near as polished as what we'll get with Empire or Terminator to Judgment Day. As a story about a guerrilla rebellion, I think the way this film is made, both as far as technique and real-life circumstances with what they're doing, I think help make it work as well as it does. Do I have issues with the Force? Yeah, that's entirely a personal thing. It's my least favorite component of Star Wars in general, with a couple of exceptions. But as a blockbuster, and as far as archetypical cinema for everybody, it is a universal recommendation. I don't think there is someone that you can look at and say, oh, you would not like this movie, unless you're just an asshole. Those people do exist but if you know them by name, you probably don't want to associate with them. So I can laugh at some of the amateurish technical errors, like the stormtrooper hitting his head. But as far as getting a complete story in a futuristic setting that takes place in the past, it has stood the test of time for a reason. And it has launched its own empire with good reason. So I am going to give this the same score that Adam did. I am at a 9, nine on 10 for this as well. Two nines for Star Wars. You know, Star Wars isn't just a movie. It is proof that dreams come true. Not just for the main character of this movie, but also for the man making it. Star Wars revolutionized filmmaking. If it weren't for this movie, you wouldn't have Superman, which we discussed a couple months ago. You wouldn't have Marvel films. You wouldn't have Pirates of the Caribbean. The studios were in trouble while this movie was being made. They were not sure the studio system would last. This movie was proof that money could be made off of movies. It also turned Lucas into something that he really, really hated, which was 
part of the studio system. This movie made executives stand up and say, we can make money. What else can we make? Now, all that being said, I'm right with you guys. This movie's not perfect. There is a reason Mark Hamill didn't go on to win or be nominated for Oscars. You still have the 70s aesthetic. The 70s haircuts, I think, would turn a lot of people off. There are issues with the plot. Why the fuck does that red droid explode? But still, all that being said, I'm completely with you guys. If I look at this as its own entity, as its own film, as its own thing, that what if Empire was not made? What if Return wasn't made? What if we didn't get the prequels? What if we didn't get the Disney sequels? Putting all that aside, this movie, as it stands on its own, is pretty damn great. And it's more than just a revolutionary film. It's a pretty damn good one. I have a different score written down than YouTube, but it's only a half point off. I have an 8.5. Again, not perfect. But goddamn, did this movie change the way movies were made? Most would say for the better. Some would say for the worst. We'll get into that next week. But for this week, yeah, definitely a film that if you haven't seen it already, which where the hell have you been? Just take a look at it. And if you haven't seen it in a long time, watch it again. It's one of those movies that if you put it on, you kind of feel like you're probably not in the mood for it. But as it goes on, you figure out, yeah, I'm really in the mood for this. Like, let's see more of this. So yeah, 8.5 out of 10 for me for Star Wars. So, like I mentioned, this had made Lucas into a part of the studio system. He took the funding of this and he pumped it into The Empire Strikes Back, which we'll get into next week. As I mentioned, it was my first Star Wars theatrical experience, and I believe it was my first theatrical experience, period. Adam, what, uh, what do you expect when we talk about The Empire Strikes Back next week? I think we're going to have an animated discussion about change of tone and dark sequels and... I think this is when we're going to get into a discussion of adults, uh, Star Wars being for adults, kids, both, and what a cliffhanger truly means in a cinematic universe. You draw? So I will echo everything that Adam said, and I will also say there is a good chance a lot of you will hate me after next week's show. But I could say that about any opinion that I have about Star Wars. <laughs> so who fucking knows at this point? Definitely have thoughts on this, but I really can't wait to discuss this again long form next week with you boys. Everyone, I hope we've um, we've added something different to your thoughts on Star Wars. Again, we're doing this because it was requested of us, and um, I think the three of us could really add a lot to discussions when it comes to Star Wars. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining me on this Star Wars journey. It should also be said that we're not going to do all nine in a row. As Matt pointed out, we have rationed them out a little bit and in between we are doing the two ewok movies right after we're through with the first three theatrical features and then eventually a few months down the line we're going to get to the prequels and we'll do the clone wars right after that and at the end of the year we will close it off by talking about the disney films and who knows maybe on patreon we'll add a few other star wars things because god knows <laughs> disney plus has really added to the lore of star wars and i have watched those all three of us have but i think i was the last to actually get on that bandwagon so maybe we'll do that for patreon we'll see in the future but till next week when we discuss the empire strikes back the podcast will be with you always thank you gentlemen Well, that's the real trick, isn't it? And it's going to cost you something extra. 10000 all in advance. 10000 I'd almost buy our own ship for that. But who's going to fly it, kid? You? You bet I could. I'm not such a bad pilot myself. I'm not just sitting on this 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. The Force can have a strong influence on the weak mind. Join us next week for an entirely new review. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. And no questions asked. You strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And if you like this podcast, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more. She's fast enough for you, old man. The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. I call it luck. In my experience, there's no such thing as luck. Edited by Garrett. Let the Wookiee win. Voiceovers by Adam. Excuse me, sir, but that R2 unit is in prime condition. A real bargain. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. That's impossible, even for a computer. Come on, R2, we're going. Are we doing Megan first or Star Wars? We always do the big ones first. Let's get let's get Star Wars done first. Because I see this going at least three hours, honestly. That'll be crickets on my end. <laughs> uh Matt or Adam, you okay with that? If we do Star oh, Wars first? I'm good either way. Okay. Yeah, All right. We got freaking Rick McCallum sitting over here. Yeah, we'll do whatever you want, George. All right. Goudreau, are you doing a backup? Uh, yeah, backup's going. Okay. 
And so is the case, backup going to be special edition where I put in like new sound effects? <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, it's going, so ready when you are. So Leia puts what we will eventually find out is the Rebel plans to the Death Star and to the R2 unit, and as she's trying to hide from the troops, uh, I'm sorry, until she is, and as she's trying to hide from the troops. So even though Vader is not the end-all, be-all villain, he's strategic in how he operates. Like He's not a moron whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. We're an hour in. I think we're only about seven minutes into the movie. <laughs> the fact that George Lucas and Mark Hamill were both in very bad car accidents yeah. is also kind of scary because that happened, what, right after this movie released? Right after. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is why the holiday special, he looks like a mannequin. <laughs> I want to cover that special so bad. These guys won't do it. <laughs> I, I will get I, them to do it eventually. Fine. I will say on the air, if you want us to do it, I will watch it for the first time for this show. I have only seen it drunk. I have never watched it sober. <laughs> That's the only way to watch it. Adam. For Adam's, <laughs> for Adam's reasons. So. <laughs> Adam, how do you feel about Mark Hamill here, sir? It's that whole thing of like, yeah, you're my family, but it's not like you're my parents per se. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's a good, efficient uh, like, way. Sorry. No, I was just going to say it. So Luke makes a compromise, and Kenobi just ends it by saying, you must do what you feel is right, of course. We then cut to a Senate meeting where we are getting a lot of little nuggets being... Is somebody going to say something? I'm sorry. Yeah, you sounded more like Billy D. Williams than you did. (laughs) (laughs) I tried. What the fuck did I say? <laughs> Which is ironic given next week's movie. But. I know. Oh, I'm not the impressionist you are, sir. We're also being introduced to Count Dracula himself, Peter Cushing. No, he wasn't Dracula. He's, he was Van Helsing. He was. Oh, that's right. He was Van Helsing. I was we, thinking. Of, I was thinking of the guy that Adam brought up earlier. <laughs> yeah, we get Dracula in the Clone Wars. Yes. All right. We're also being introduced to Van Helsing himself. <laughs> And we mentioned earlier, Cam- uh, Hamill, I said Camel. Hamill is funny bit of trivia here. Lucas was still in his fast car mode and inserted these dice in the cockpit as a tribute, <laughs> but they didn't last very long until we get to. Oh, those things, those things matter later oh, on. God, don't get me started. Oh don't get me started. Now, now I'm going to say. I used to drive my parents mad when this scene came on because I would run around the house with my Han Solo blaster and just reenact, Chewie, get us out of here. <laughs> my grandma would come visit and ask my mom, is he okay? <laughs> this and Superman 3, Matt, shaped me. <laughs> at, le- at least you could justify this one. <laughs> <laughs> and he went up to George Lucas and he's like, wait. For continuity, shouldn't my hair still be all wet and gross? And Han just goes, or Han, Harrison looks at him and goes, <laughs> Meanwhile, Vader... But the, the, doesn't she, not, she only knows him as Obi-Wan, though, doesn't she? Well, she does say Obi-Wan, but how many people have the last name fucking Kenobi? Let, let's be honest, how many people in this universe have the last name Skywalker, as we find <laughs> That's out? That's true. <laughs> well, you can just take that name for your own, but I don't Yeah, yeah. and I'll, well, also, let's remember... Stolo is not a real last name. <laughs> oh Jesus! I thought we were gonna. I thought we said we weren't gonna mention any of that <laughs> in this podcast. Yeah, but, but like all things involving Star Wars, we changed our mind. 
<laughs> we went faster and more intense. Oh, oh God. They find out real quick. Damn it, I just bumped my mic. They find out real quick that Ben. It's fantastic, and it, it leaves it on such a joyous, uplifting note. Princess Leia looks absolutely amazing. Everybody's cleaned up after it, and realizing that the rebellion, it feels like it's growing a little bit because there's a decent crowd inside there. It feels like something happened by destroying the Death Star. You think I can convince Jen to come down to the aisle to this? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Matt? You have, a better chance, you have a better chance of convincing her for you to wear Luke's yellow jacket. <laughs> Matt? That's great. Uh, there's a good chance a lot of you will hate me after next week's show. But I could say that about any opinion that I have about Star Wars. So, so who fucking knows at this point? Boy, you are, you've become a master of the teases, my friend. Uh, yeah, ask my husband. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, beat me to that one. <laughs>